and we are both videoing and audio recording the session. Uh, please make sure that you wait until the microphone is brought to you if you have a question, uh, again, since we are recording. Uh, we're going to start first. When, when I set this up, I thought we needed to have a neutral presentation on attorney's fees. Uh, so I invited a couple of speakers from the State Bar Fee Arbitration Committee. They are not expressing views of the State Bar uh, Fee Arbitration Committee. These are their own views. Our first speaker is Jennifer, uh, Honorable Jennifer Ryan Tuhill. She became a judge with Maricopa County Superior Court in February. Previously, she was a judge pro tem for over five years. She's also previously owned her own law firm, practicing juvenile law and family law for 12 years and she worked for the Attorney General's office. She was also a member of the State Bar Fee Arbitration Committee. Uh, our other speaker is Steve Gattel, and he has practiced employment and labor law for 40 years, uh, so obviously he started when he was 12. He now focuses activities on being a full-time mediator and arbitrator. He's been an adjunct professor of law at Arizona Summit Law School since 2012, teaching alternative dispute resolution and professional responsibility. He's the chair of the State Bar Fee Arbitration Committee, uh, council member of the Alternative Dispute Resolution Section, is a, and is on a great number of arbitrator and mediator panels. He was a judge pro tem for the Maricopa County Superior Court for over 15 years. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. Uh, oh, we're up on the screen. You can start. What, what, um, just... what Judge Ryan Tudor and I are going to speak about this morning in the next 40 minutes, uh, maybe a little dry, but it will hopefully set forth the basis upon which you understand uh, the obligation under the rules of professional conduct in a recent case of uh, what reasonable attorney's fees are. We look at these fees as more of a look back, um, what is reasonable after the matter is resolved or after you get it before you and not at the front end. But there are the rules of professional responsibility, uh, eight specific rules, uh, categories, factors that we consider. And these I think it's worth running through uh, and explaining to you because they would be the basis upon which when you make determinations on attorney's fees, that the appellate courts, the superior court, and in the case of the arbitrators, uh, we uh, have to be cognizant of that uh, the court is going to want to look at. We, in fact, in our fee arbitration awards, have to provide to our, uh, our arbitrators a template that goes through each of these factors. So I just want to mention those or discuss those with First of all, these are not uh, all inclusive. Some will apply in certain cases, some will apply in no cases. But first, you should be looking or considering the time and labor required. Uh, the novelty and difficulty of the questions involved is still requisite to perform legal services properly. Um, if something is basically one grade above paralegal or a paralegal grade, um, that's probably not likely going to be a three, four, five hundred dollar per hour um, reasonable fee. Um, even if the attorney, and again, my, my view, not the view of the state bar, not the view of any arbitrator who looks at a particular matter, uh, or I presume you or a superior court judge wanting a particular matter. Uh, but those, that's sort of the consideration. What's the novelty? What's the, what's the uh, 
issues involved. Number two, the likelihood um, that the employment will preclude employment by the attorney to do other things. Um, that's generally not a factor that's uh, highly considered, but it does come up um, where someone may be coming in for a TRO and it's a period point. Uh, three, the fee customarily charged in the locality for similar legal services. There is available through the state bar an annual survey. It's called the Economics of Law Practice. The current one, I believe, is 2013. Um, and that breaks down hourly rates uh, for partners, for associates, for persons practicing in various periods of time, for size of the law firm. It does not, and I know we're here to speak on HOAs, does not specifically refer to HOAs, but does talk about civil litigation. And it does provide some parameters. Having said that, I would it's know that. It's oh, it, oh, you have in the packet. That's excellent. We weren't sure. Um, Judge uh, uh, Ryan Tuvo and I were not sure it would be distributed. It's good that you had that. Um, that can sometimes be used as a benchmark. What's, what's uh, going on in the area? But I would suggest that many of you probably already know from your practices as, as uh, Justice Court judges, uh, you know what's coming in the door. Um, number three, the amount involved in the results obtained. Um, from what I've been able to glean, and I've only been in Justice Court one or two times uh, over the 30 plus years I've been here in Arizona, um, but some of these cases, uh, the ones I've been reading about, um, the dollars involved, the amounts involved are very small. And there it appears there is concern that when you have a three, four, six hundred dollar dispute, uh, a two thousand dollar attorney fee uh, charge may be somewhat high. Now, there could be justifiable reasons for that. Um, the uh, defendant, the other party, is not cooperating. Um, they can't be found, there might be reasonable basis for that. But you, as I saw in your best practices, the $400 fee, um, you know, that's a consideration. But if you go through this, these factors, it may be helpful in showing the uh, Superior Court judges you, you, you considered it, uh, consider the numbers you came up with. Um, the time limitation imposed by the client to the circumstances. Again, I don't know, but expect that that may not be a concern of yours, but maybe it is that it comes in, so it may not be a factor that's necessarily considered. Um, the nature and length of the professional relationship with the client. Again, that's not necessarily something I would see come up in HOA matters or expect to see, but it's something, again, you may want to consider. How long have the clients and the attorney been together? Um, Seven, the experience, reputation, ability of lawyer, lawyers performing the services. Uh, if someone is, using, is, is a new attorney and they have to educate themselves through the process, uh, who's going to be paying for that? Uh, you know, a lot of major law firms are finding that their clients are not allowing that anymore. They're, you're not a training ground. Uh, the, the, the new client or the client's not training ground for younger and experienced attorneys. How much does it really take to do the work necessary uh, to provide the representation? Uh, and what is the reasonable rate? And the degree of risk assumed by the lawyers. Uh, if these are hourly cases, there's probably very little risk assumed by the lawyer. That, that role is to take care of the uh, uh, contingency. Uh, comment, it's all that's in your materials. Um, 
these are not exclusive considerations. Uh, and you should also be aware that when you look at the applications, I would suggest you look at the agreements. Um, I have seen as the chair of the fee arbitrator, attorneys sometimes in error charge for things they have not agreed to charge for. The client has not agreed to pay. And I would suggest that if the client has agreed to pay them, there's a question of whether a party that is obligated to pay them under contract or under statute is also obligated to pay. And we'll be addressing that in a few minutes. You have the, the basis of the fee has to be set forth. A number of you may be aware that a number of years ago the Supreme Court changed the rule that there must be advance notice for increases in fees. Uh, if an attorney has raised his or her fee during the representation, that has to be set forth uh, in advance. So the clients, and I know it doesn't apply with the third party who have to pay the fee, but so the client can make a decision in a, with a reasonable amount of time to say either I want to pay that or I want to seek another attorney. Um, historically, before the rule changed, uh, the new bill that was sent to the client was sufficient notice. The Supreme Court changed that uh, five or six years ago and said it has to be advanced. Um, the basis or rate of the fee. Uh, what, is, what is the basis? How are the fees determined? And a written statement should exist. Uh, there should be a writing that sets forth the nature of the representation, the extent of the representation, what the charges are going to be, uh, how they're built. And those, you should consider reviewing those to make sure, as I said earlier, that they are uh, billing for things that they agreed to bill for. And what is the method of billing? Is it, and I would suspect it's mainly hourly billing, uh, but that should also be set forth. I, can I just by a show of hands, uh, let me know, are there contingent fees that come up? Is that a problem, an issue? Okay, so you do see them. Um, contingent fees should be explained very clearly. Uh, clients, sometimes believe that contingent fees are based upon the net amount. They don't realize that expenses come out of that. And most good law firms will set forth an explanation of what is the contingent fee, how it's actually give an example of how it's paid. And that should perhaps be in the agreement that you have to review. And of course, the restrictions on contingent fees for domestic relations and criminal cases um, also, the earned upon received non-refundable terms, those have to, uh, there are restrictions on that. Um, the fact that something may be a non-refundable fee uh, does not mean that that fee is reasonable. I will handle your HOA matter for a non-refundable fee for $5,000. I write a letter to the homeowner. They say, oh, pardon me, I'm sorry to pay, here's your $500. I would suggest that a $5,000 fee for that is not reasonable. Um, as I said, we look back at those in Arizona, unlike other some other jurisdictions, and I'll just give you an example. Contingent fees when I was in law school in Massachusetts, and even now because I have a 
Lord New York and his friends, the PI attorney, if they ring the bell, they think that's perfectly fine. In Arizona, the courts will look at that. Uh, in Ray Schwartz, which I know we'll be discussed later, as I recall, that the fee in that case, depending upon the hours that were spent, because there were no, the hours were not just made to a contemporaneous manner, was somewhere between $1,600 and $2,000 an hour. And the court found that that was uh, unreasonable. Terms of payment must be set forth, um, and the specifically disclosure of rights, or disclosure of refund rights in certain prepaid matters. Uh, if you've got division fee between lawyers, um, there has to be joint responsibility, and the client has to agree. I have seen very recently uh, provisions where we as the law firm have the right to bring in other attorneys and you don't have a say in it, Mr. and Mrs. Client, uh, or HMA client. Um, under our rules, that's not uh, allowed in 1.5. Uh, and some comments on the division fees. fees. I'm going to turn the matter over to uh, Judge and let her talk about uh, candidates for appeal. Could I have a show of hands? How many of you are familiar with the Fee Arbitration Committee through the State Bar? So, a, a fair amount. Um, I think it would be beneficial for, for you to know a little bit more about it. The Fee Arbitration uh, Committee with the State Bar um, provides a mechanism for alternative dispute resolution when there is a dispute over fees. Some attorneys have in their fee agreement with their clients a provision for mandatory, mandatory arbitration in the event fees are disputed. If a matter goes to fee arbitration, um, the burden of proof is on the attorney to demonstrate that the fees are reasonable. And that is a little bit, in my opinion, different from what some of the case law says with respect to what happens in the courtroom. Nevertheless, um, I do believe that that is the appropriate way to look at a case because especially in situations that might be presented to you, you're going to have a self-represented litigant who's going to be up against somebody who has perhaps a significant amount of experience and is the self-represented litigant going to be sophisticated enough to be able to address all these factors that Steve had just addressed in his presentation. Um, I do believe that as stated, the Fee Arbitration Committee provides a remedy to resolve these issues. Um, you as judicial officers, and this would dovetail into the candor towards the tribunal, I believe that you would you have the ability to direct parties to participate in this service if they appear before you, if you believe that there are some ethical considerations. And so if you are, for example, looking at a situation where somebody wrote a letter, and that was a $5,000 letter, um, I can tell you in private practice, I never wrote $5,000 letters. If I had, I would have done it twice a month. And that's all I would have done for an entire year. And then I would have gone shopping and on vacations. Um, that is clearly excessive. So it's, if, if I were a judicial officer sitting over a matter and somebody came to me with that sort of scenario, I would not only say that that fee is not reasonable, and I don't, I understand that's where your contractual agreement states. However, I don't find that that fee is reasonable. I also then have concerns about ethical considerations. 
because you as the attorney have a responsibility to say or to prove that your fees are reasonable. And you can't simply say my fees are reasonable because I said so. Um, if that is, I'm sure that attorneys try that argument and it really doesn't work. It's the whole uh-uh defense. That is, there's no basis in law for because I said so. Um, they, attorneys know that they have to demonstrate the reasonableness of that. Um, and I want to dovetail that back into the economics of law practice. I found when I was on the fee arbitration committee um, that was a very useful guideline because not only does it tell you what may be considered reasonable for your the size of your firm, your professional experience, it also addresses it by different counties throughout the state, which is also helpful because what might be reasonable in Maricopa County might not be reasonable in Pima County or Santa Cruz County, etc. It it will vary. Um, and so that is something else that provides useful guidance. And I would not hesitate to say to an attorney, well, the economics of law practice says that as a guideline, the range is for this type of work is anywhere from $250 to $350 an hour. And your billing statement shows, if I break it down correctly, you were $675 an hour. Can you please explain to me how you can justify that fee. And that would again go back into candor towards the tribunal along with the attorney's compliance with the rules of professional conduct. There is a, I think that part of the way to approach all of this is just common sense, honestly, because you can, you can look at this and say, well, we entered into this agreement. This is what you have to follow. This is what you have to demonstrate. And that might be what that contractual agreement says, but you have to balance that with what is the lawyer's ethical responsibility in that matter. And the lawyer does have a higher burden. Um, the When you discuss candor towards the tribunal, if you look, let me switch this over. Um, and I'm not going to read all of this to you. I just want to state that there, first, most importantly, is that a lawyer shall not knowingly make a false statement of fact or law um, and shall correct a false statement. So, again, that would be that $5,000 letter. Um, if the attorney is submitting a request for award of fees for a $5,000 letter, arguably, they are not demonstrating candor towards the tribunal, and that is arguably an ethical violation. If you believe that an attorney has committed an ethical violation or it has the appearance of impropriety in that regard, you would then be able to report them to the state bar. And that goes back then to the fee arbitration committee because what the state bar can do is if they believe that it is something that could be resolved through fee arbitration, they would also direct the parties to participate in that, if appropriate. Um, ultimately, it just it's common sense. Don't lie to me. Don't tell me it's a five thousand dollar letter. I mean, really, it's 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 things like that. It's not that complicated. It's not that difficult. And don't try to convince me that it is otherwise because, um, as stated, if we all did that in practice, then we wouldn't have to do very much on a daily basis to meet our expenses and pay our bills, and we would all be flush with cash.
Um, I, that was a very short presentation on this, but prior to going forward with In the Matter of Ireland, um, there are some things of which you should be aware. It's at the bottom of page six. Um, when, as Steve suggested, looking at a copy of the fee agreement that the attorney should provide when making a if first of all requested by you or requested by the other party or to demonstrate the reasonableness of their fees and justify it. Um, even if the fee agreement states, um, oh, we can charge you for these things, these costs and expenses, it still has to be reasonable. So copying charges that perhaps were charged to the client Again, what is reasonable? Is it 10 cents a page? Is it 25 cents a page? And there are other ethical rules that apply to this too. Um, but is it $1.50 a page? Is it $2 a page? How, how, what does the fee agreement state? I believe that you are well within your rights to review that terminology also when you are determining the reasonableness of fees. Um, and again, prior to turning it over to Steve to discuss in the matter of Ireland, I do want to defer to Steve to see if there's anything that he would like to add to my comments. Uh, I would just be, <coughs> thank you, Judge. I would just be cautious as to things such as uh, estimates of time it takes. It always takes us this amount of time to do this type, type of complaint, uh, or standard amounts of time. Uh, our rules, as I interpret them as, as we train our fee arbitrators, uh, is what is the actual time taken? Are there contemporaneous time records? If they're not contemporaneous, how can they be relied upon? Um, even if someone has a contingent fee agreement, um, they should keep time records because at some point in time, the determination is going to have to be made as to whether or not the fee is reasonable. Uh, in contingent fee agreements, there may be a strong uh, issue as to the factor of risk to the lawyer. And so certainly uh, a high hourly rate may be perfectly justified. Uh, but, uh, and again, those, those factors are not equally weighted, uh, but you have to be careful when you look at that, uh, when you look at the fee agreement and, and everything that everyone is doing on it, uh, are they actually doing work that's reasonable, that's necessary, uh, specifically reasonable for the representation? Uh, and just shifting back a bit, uh, charging standard, we always charge $3,000 to file a complaint and, and seek recovery of uh, unpaid HOA fees, where the HOA fees are three, four, five dollars Does that meet uh, all of the factors? And those are things that the rules of professional responsibility, I believe, allow you to consider and which are in the rules that the lawyer uh, ethically is obligated to consider when they, when they make their, their fee determinations. Uh, Oh, yes. Uh, I can just yell. I got no, no, no. Wait, wait for the microphone. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now you got like 12 minutes. Mm -hmm. okay. We don't really, in justice court, we typically don't get a scenario where someone is objecting to the attorney's fees. What we get frequently are defaults and where there's no one objecting to the attorney's fees. And You'll, you'll have a scenario, whether it's a, a consumer debt case or an HOA case or something like that, and we typically don't have an attorney fee agreement. I don't think most of us even ask for that. But what we see is um, 
you, you look at one case, you're like, wow, this is really impressive. Look at all these attachments. Look at all this stuff. And then you get five more cases where the attachments are, are literally identical. The only thing changing are the name of the defendant, the amount due, and maybe the address of the property or something like that. And so you get maybe five, six of these literally filed on the same day from the same law firm. And they all um, charge 1.2 hours over the file, you know, point review, research, okay. garnishment, whatever. Judge, and when we're, when we're getting... Judge, judge yes. can you leave that for the judge's panel if we ask questions? I, I really, really, really want these guys We're going to get through the material if you ask okay. questions like that okay. at this point. All right. Um, I, I would just say this is a professional responsibility by the attorney. They, we have professional rules. We're not lawyers in this business profession dichotomy, but we're professions, and a lawyer uh, should not be asking for something that's not uh, allowed under the rules. Uh, the fact that no one's on the other side doesn't relieve the lawyer of the obligation to make sure what they do is right. Uh, so you, you still have that issue. I know we're, we're, we're not going to get through the material for it if we allow questions now, so I'm going to ask you to hold your questions. Um, in the matter of Ireland, what, what happened in the matter of Ireland was the court addressed whether you can bill for things that may be implied in your billings but aren't set forth expressly. Uh, you can, if you don't put it, if, it, if it's not in the fee agreement, I would suggest to Justice, uh, not, I'm sorry, I don't know your name, um, that you, the fee agreement ought to be submitted along with the application for fees, because how do you know the fee agreement is consistent with the application for fees? The hourly rate is set forth, things of that nature. Um, that sort of a, a, would be a basic document that would have to be submitted uh, along with the contemporaneous record of what the parties were doing. But if you don't put in your, if the lawyer does not put in a fee agreement that we will charge you for paralegals, and this is the amount we're going to charge, um, there's no basis for them to charge that uh, to a client. Uh, you know, you, you have to, under Ireland, let the client know the non-legal work that's being done, or work that's being done by non-lawyers, more importantly. Um, the two takeaways under the, under the ethics opinion is if work's not being done by the lawyer or his or her employees, uh, that must be conveyed to the lawyer or obeyed by the client, by the lawyer to the client. And if work is being done, uh, that work should be conveyed in advance to the uh, client by the lawyers to who's going to be doing the work. Uh, I'm just going to throw out the cost of percentage of uh, uh, total uh, fees. Uh, there is a rule that allows attorneys to say, for, you know, instead of charging for copy, we'll just charge 0.1% of our, our hourly rates. That is okay if there's a basis in fact. I had one matter where uh, two young attorneys had left a, a mid-sized uh, firm in Arizona, opened their own shop, and during the fee arbitration, they had the charge with a percentage was. I asked, well, how did that, you come up with that number? And they said, oh, we just took the number that our prior firm used. Well, that's not appropriate, and those fees would not be allowed. Uh, a question you may have is, well, let's say you have a situation like that. Well, since there's no basis for it, and there's evidence that they produced a whole bunch of copies, should they even, can you assert, uh, can you allow them to get fees? It is not unusual if there's no fee agreement. Uh, and notwithstanding quantum merit, that an attorney doesn't have a fee agreement is not entitled to any fees. It may be a quantum merit issue, um, but that has come up because our rules require that there be a written fee agreement uh, in advance. 
uh, relatively advanced. Uh, I'm going to move forward and get into uh, the amount of time we have. Uh, the McDowell Mountain case, which I understand you're all pretty well familiar with, um, maybe uh, I can say some things that judge not. First, I think it may be useful for her to address, the, if, you, if you wish, um, the, the uh, perhaps the facts and, and the opinion. And I can then I can talk about the dissent. Um, all right. I reviewed this, and, and I will be brief because, as stated, you're all familiar with this case. Um, this is what stood out to me when I reviewed the case. Um, a few things. That the record provided by Judge Albright um, in the case for her decision in reducing the attorney's fees by 50% um, was not supported by a clean record. And so what the Court of Appeals stated was, we don't have enough information to know why she just slashed it by 50%. We are therefore directing her to provide more information. Um, that is useful. Um, what I also found is that the majority decision in this case my interpretation of this case is that the, more, the majority opinion stated if you have a contractual agreement to enter into uh, to pay a certain amount of attorney's fees, that's your contractual agreement. And if you, Mr. or Mrs. Homeowner, do not want to be bound by that agreement, I'm sorry. Okay. Did not want to be bound by that agreement. I thought it was jazz hands. <laughs> um, did not want to be bound by that agreement. Um, you then have the burden of demonstrating why that contract is not reasonable. Versus a case where perhaps you do not have a contractual agreement for the payment of attorney's fees, then the attorney would have to demonstrate why his or her request for attorney's fees is reasonable. So it, essentially, when you have that contract provision, what I believe this case stands for is that it is switching the burden of proof over to the litigant to say those fees are not reasonable. Um, I don't like that, but that's what the Court of Appeals decided, and they're smarter than me, so they win, and it's published decision. Now, how do you reconcile that, however, with what we've already discussed, which is the ethical rules and the duty of candor to the tribunal? Um, you can have a contract, somebody can perhaps unwittingly enter into a contract where they will pay $5,000 for one letter. Um, and then that's what the contract says. So according to McDowell Mountain, that's what you're bound by unless you, the homeowner, can demonstrate why that is not reasonable. Uh, uh, this is what I think is a best practice, honestly. Is, and it and applies to me too, to make a good record. That's really what it comes down to. Um, I saw that, and I presume that you use this, this um, drop-down um, form for checking the box regarding fees. Uh, I actually really, really like this. Um, and I don't know how you use it in your daily practice, but I can tell you I'm going to co-opt this for my purposes also. Because I, how I deal with attorney's fees all the time. In my cases right now, though, I'm on a family court rotation, so the circumstances are a little bit different. But it really codifies what the ethical rule states. And 
I believe that if we use this as a guideline in making the decisions, you would then be in compliance with McDowell Mountain, um, and you would also be in compliance with the ethical rules, because um, you could say, uh, going back to the example, that, oh, these attachments are great, but here they are again, and again, and again, and again. All right, well, am I just going to look at what the, if I look at, is the amount of time spent reasonable? Um, perhaps, it's just gonna depend on the circumstances of every case, but again, if you can come to a conclusion as to why it is or is not reasonable, or the amount involved in the results obtained, et cetera, if you are able to do that and make a more specific finding on that issue, I do believe that you would then have made a clean record and you would be in compliance with McDowell Mountain. Now, the issue presented in this case is, is that really something that you would have to do or would the defaulted litigant need to be the one to bring that to your attention because of that contractual agreement? My position is that even though McDowell Mountain essentially switches the burden of proof, I believe as the judicial officer, we have to also then look at the, the uh, ethical rules. We have to say, is there, do, there, is there candor to the tribunal? And when putting it all together, even if you homeowner are not here, um, I still have an obligation to review the reasonableness of these fees and going through these factors. Um, and if I have concerns about it, or I want to do what Judge Albrecht did, was cut it by 50%, I'm going to do that, but I'm just going to make sure that my justification for doing so is listed on the record so that the appellate court knows how I arrived at that conclusion to cut it by 50%. Sorry, I was just checking my model rules of professional conduct about the rules for uh, uh, dealing with unrepresented parties and dealing with third parties. Uh, and it goes to the whole structure of professionalism by lawyers simply because there's not the other party sitting there uh, doesn't mean that you can seek fees that are not reasonable. Uh, looking at the down mountain, I just want to just touch on a couple of matters. The determination, you know, I see some issues uh, primarily to, um, where the court said the fees that were properly incurred in this matter, except as to those fees the court finds are clearly excessive. My concern here is that the rules of professional conduct say the fees must be reasonable, not that they need not be clearly excessive. Uh, and I, I think there's some space between reasonableness and not clearly excessive. Uh, and so I think the court uh, may have approached the matter from, from the wrong direction. The dissent, I think, was, was very good, at least with regard to looking at you know, implicit in the uh, any contractual provision for attorney's fees, which is what our Supreme Court under uh, the rules and the court uh, decisions find, is that it's a standard of reasonableness. That's what our rules say. Um, not not clearly excessive. Um, and also um, that you can also address the issue of the violation of professional rules of conduct could result in the award of improper fees. And so we don't want to aid the debt the award of improper fees. Uh, the, the one concern that I have uh, with the dissent is, is what was obvious, but the, I think the problem that arose was here the court, the, the 
the sense that the trial court implicitly found the request was, was unreasonable. And that, I think, if you read the decision, read the facts, is probably correct. Uh, however, the, the, I don't want to call it the error, but the, it would have been better uh, to, if the trial court had set forth the specific eight factors and why the determination came out to the 50%. Uh, it's certainly implicit. It's, as I said, why we do it in fee arbitration. Our, our template for our warrants is because our awards do get appealed to Superior Court. And if a Superior Court cannot determine how the eight factors apply to the specific case, um, to the demeanor of the witnesses, things of that nature, um, then the trial court's left without any basis to make a determination if is whether or not the arbitrator made a reasonable decision. I would also caution you, because I've seen this come up quite a few times as an arbitrator it came up recently in a case I heard, where attorneys are not keeping contemporaneous records. Um, and in one case, the attorney in her uh, case in chief testified that they were contemporaneous, at least that's what I heard two or three times. I asked her some questions about it and she repeated it. It wasn't until cross-examination um, by the other attorney where it came out that the records were not produced until the uh, ethics committee had uh, inquired into the matter. Um, so you, and I'm not suggesting uh, lawyers don't, you know, as a, as, a, as a rule, don't always tell you what's correct. I think they do. They try to be forthright. But sometimes a little bit more inquiry has to be made. Having said that, I know there's a lot on your plate every day when you come to work in the morning, and focusing on, on fee disputes is, is may not be high in the priority. But it does affect how the public, I believe, sees the whole idea of fees and attorneys in the justice system. Um, and I would expect that sometimes when you get these default cases, these are people who are um, not concerned, they're running away, they don't want to pay it, and uh, you get that issue on the side. But at bottom, you know, we're, we're here to uh, maintain a form of justice, and so sometimes it does take a little bit longer, and hopefully it doesn't come up that frequently. Okay. Thank you. I just want to very briefly add that if you look at the last word. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, questions to ponder. Um, number four uh, is similar to the question that was posed by the judge. Um, perhaps in that case, maybe what would be a best practices for you is it's not necessarily to say I'm going to review a fee agreement for every time that there's a request for fees because that's probably not reasonable given your workload. Um, however, if you have something where you have five cases in a row and it's provided by X firm and it's all strikingly similar, that might be a case where you then want to look at the fee agreement. And one other thing to consider is that, and, and Steve touched on this earlier, but I, wanted, I want to hit this again. An attorney's a, a fee agreement may say we reserve the right to increase our fees, costs, etc. As appropriate, as as you know, inflation. What, however, they want to phrase it, that's fine. They can do that. However, they must be the attorney or the firm must provide advance written notice to the clients that they're going to do that. So, if you're looking at something and you say, "Well, you're giving me a fee agreement, and that's great," and it's dated 2012 and it's now 2015, and these amounts don't match, oh well, we raised our fees. Well, where's the written notification that you were going to do that? Or how come this attorney charged this amount and now 
four months later, this attorney has a different hourly rate. Well, where did you provide notice that you were going to do that? That is something else that they're also responsible for doing. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Uh, we're going to switch our panels now, and so I'll ask the plaintiff's uh, representatives to come on up. Sorry to cut off the questions there. Put your hands down. We have a two-hour judges panel that's going to finish the day. I promise you'll have time to ask all your questions then. Uh, Trump, judge, this is a question for you. How will we access the tribunal? We, we can talk about that later. Judge Ryan Tuhill has another uh, has another uh, commitment. She's leaving. Uh, Mr. Gutel is going to stick around. He promised. He's going to get coffee, but he's going to come back, so he'll also be here for the judges panel. And our uh, plaintiff's panel is Scott Carpenter, and he focuses primarily on general counsel, corporate transactional matters, complex litigation, business advice, transactions, employment issues, and conflict resolution and avoidance for condominiums, homeowners associations, planned community associations, and cooperatives. He's the author of Community Association Law in Arizona and is a frequent contributor to continuing legal education courses on community associations. David Hameroff, at the end, has owned law firms since 1999. He now owns Hameroff Law Group, which represents original creditors, debt purchasers, and hospitals with their collection matters throughout the state of Arizona. He's also a founding member and treasurer of the Arizona Creditor Bar Association. And Edith Edie Rutter practices in the Assessment Recovery Department at Eckmark and Eckmark and has an extensive background in general business litigation, real estate, civil litigation, and non-technical non intellectual property. Prior to law school, she managed the International Intellectual, intellectual Property Portfolio of a major oil field chemical company. And again, I'll ask that you hold your questions. If the panel finishes early, we can ask them then. If not, we'll ask them during the judges' panel. Well, they told me to go first because they're doing a combined presentation. Uh, I feel like a little bit of an interloper here. Um, this really was brought about by the Homeowners Association lawyers. And even though I'm in the same panel with them, we come at, at attorney's fees from a different angle. I've spoken at the Judges College with Judge Williams three or four years. We really never did the attorney's fees because of the contract provisions. But um, our offices have appeared in front of many of the judges over the last, over the last 11 years. Um, and I'm not sure how a credit card lawyer got here, but I got invited. I never, <laughs> and like I say, if I get invited, I'm, I'm hard to get. You just have to ask. Um, I have 13 minutes, so i got to go. Um, one comment I get by the judges, I get it informally and formally, is, David, you guys are all over the place. Firm A asked for no attorney's fees. Firm B asked for a set sum, 300, 400, 500. And Firm C asked for a percentage basis. Uh, I mean, one guy just said, why can't you all just figure this stuff out? And maybe Judge Williams are sort of going that way anyway. I don't know. <laughs> Keep in mind, we have clients, OK? I mean, many original creditor clients are mandating that attorneys aren't asking for attorney's fees. Frankly, uh, with CFPB regulation of banks, so the banks are directing the attorneys, thou shall not ask for attorney's fees. Okay, well, that's when your client says don't ask for attorney's fees, that's, that's the way it goes. Those are cases that are easy for you, and frankly, they're probably easier for the plaintiff's bar as well. And, um, firm B asks for a lump sum per case, perhaps in accordance with the Best Practices Act. Don't really know how that amount comes around. Firm C asks for a percentage on their fee. What's the theory there? The make whole doctrine. 
I mean, if a client turns over a $5,000 account, Grant Road Lumber sells somebody $5,000 of lumber, and they don't get paid, they send it to my office, they pay me a 25% contingency fee, I collect the money, their net return back is $37.50. They have not been made whole. Now, maybe you think they shouldn't, maybe you think that the defendant shouldn't have to pay, but the bottom line is they sent me $5,000 to collect, I collected it, and they're ending up with $37.50. Some clients aren't happy about that. Um, when the accord awards attorney's fees, either the lump sum or a percentage, it allows the client to get back closer to the amount that they actually sent over to the attorney. <coughs> and this, this is sort of referenced in China Doll, where the court recognized the change from the American rule, each party pays their own costs, to the English rule, which is where the prevailing party or is entitled to uh, recover their fees. And I think Judge Meyerson is here. I hope I paraphrased it correctly. If I'm not, if I didn't, please don't tell me out loud. Come <laughs> tell me afterwards. You can talk later. Okay. Please. Okay. Thank you, Judge. I, I, I saw the, the quote. And, okay. You'll, you'll click. Help me out. So on to our materials. Now, I, I, a lot of you have a guy, a young man named Brian Partridge, who appears in front of you in the offices of James Bond. He's the one who prepared these materials for me, so I just figure I, I owe him a shout out since he did the hard work. Um, the, the materials consist of two pieces of material. One is a summary, of, a summary which I put aside, and the second is what I, don't know, I guess I would call a white paper on determining a reasonable attorney's fees. Let's start with. Um, Let's start with how, you know, how what's the right to ask for attorney's fees. There's two reasons a plaintiff is entitled to ask for attorney's fees. There's contractual and procedural. Uh, excuse me, contractual and statutory. So I'm going to speak specifically to credit card cases since that's what I do mostly. The contract is generally the card member agreement. The judges, you see that. You sometimes see the terms and conditions. As you know, the charge-off statement doesn't discuss fees, uh, fees or costs. All it discusses interest rate and uh, amount owed. Uh, I reviewed hundreds of these credit card agreements over the years, and frankly, they're quite boring. Uh, thank goodness I have that F5 thing on my computer where I can just write, pull up the attorney's fees. I have not seen one, let me put it the other way, I've reviewed hundreds, not, not one has not provided for attorney's fees. They say it in different ways, but you know, the credit card companies, if they hire their internal lawyers, they don't care about the other lawyers. They want to be paid the full amount of the amount that they've advanced to their, to their merchants. So the TNC, terms and conditions, always have it. The uh, card member agreement always have it. And that's the basis for, for the award. The second basis for the award, uh, go to the white paper, page one bottom, is statutory. And I think, Steve, you talked about 12341.01. Uh, Arizona courts allow the court's discretion to award the successful party its reasonable attorney's fees. And why? I think Steve would agree that to mitigate the expense of litigating these cases, 12341.01 goes back to the make whole doctrine, which basically says, and the, and the English rule, which basically says, look, you, you lost the case. There's consequences of losing a case. Um, how do plaintiffs 
You know, I use the word plaintiffs, that's really not fair. How do attorneys get attorney's fees? Well, there's procedural requirements. You have to ask for them. You can't come in on a default judgment and ask for attorney's fees if you haven't said up front in the complaint, I'm asking for attorney's fees. If you file an answer to a complaint, what lawyer doesn't ask for attorney's fees? If they do, well, never mind. They, they need to. If you file a pre-motion, excuse me, a pre-answer motion to dismiss, every lawyer will ask for attorney's fees. So you obviously have to give the adverse party upfront notice that you, excuse me, that you're asking for them. And in particular, I'll cite you to our rules, which is 139E, which basically go to the white paper, page two of five, middle of the page. It says to obtain the award of attorney's fees, the party must file a motion with the court stating the legal basis of the claim for fees, contract, statutory, with an affidavit supporting exhibits, including any contract that provides for attorney's fees. And in contested cases, the opposing party can then uh, discuss, can basically oppose that. But we're really talking about uncontested cases here. Um, and the most difficult part is calculating the reasonable attorney's fees. I mean, the courts have recognized this is a white page, white paper pages two through five. The court's discretion to review the filings to determine a reasonable fee. Uh, the discretion must be based on legal justification. The judge, I'm sorry, the judge just went through this. I'm sorry to repeat. Um, and in contested cases, you, the judge, you've been a participant in that case. You've, you've lived through the trial. You've lived through the motions. It's easier if you make an attorney's fees evaluations on that. So let's talk about the attorney's fees in default cases uh, where only the plaintiff has appeared. One, let's assume that the attorney's fees has been asked for in the complaint. And two, uh, plaintiff shows with the contract, card member agreement, terms and conditions. What is the court to do? You know, I think Steve kind of covered this. Um, paragraph three of five, uh, excuse me, paragraph five on page three of five. The issue before the court, the issue before the court, and that's where the China Doll affidavit comes in. Uh, review the China Doll affidavit if there is one. If it looks reasonable, award the amount. <coughs> and apparently, the new the form that we, I, I just saw for the first time today shows that you are actually having the opportunity to do that with the form that the judge pointed out and is in your packet. I can't I can't say the name of that form. Ruling on attorney's fees. So this is really sort of what you're doing. What, uh, and if the court's going to reduce the amount, then look to 3.22 of your best practices. 3.22 of your best practices that, ju that the judge that brought that submitted. The court is going to reduce the amount requested in the China law affidavit. The best practice is to note in the court file the reason and enter the number deemed reasonable. The secondary issue I have with it, I mean, with the best practices is then this is alternatively go to the four hundred dollar mark. And I know I guess generally I would disagree that that is the time and that doesn't fully justify fully compensate the attorney for the time of the case and for basically helping the client get more of their money back. But that's something I'm sure you guys will discuss later today. You asked to talk about attorney's fees on garnishment matters. Um, so it, it's, I'm, I'm gonna switch gears now. This is well, all these post-judgment garnishment, garnishment hearings. 
Um, I think the, the rule's kind of pretty clear now, but the, the 2014 Bennett Blum case pretty much says what, how attorney's fees are awarded in garnishment hearings. I was actually at a seminar just two weeks ago on attorney's fees given by Gary Cohen, the lawyer who represented uh, the defendant in that matter. And he, he said the attorney's fees were astronomical. It was $17,000 so in dispute, and attorney's fees like $40,000. And it was, you know, and the defendant had absolutely been hassling and hiding the ball. I mean, caused just the way he described it was brutal, brutal for the plaintiff, and uh, who was trying to collect the money. But the court basically said, uh, I mean, my natural reaction as the plaintiff's lawyer in that case would be, look, this this basic, this is based on contract. We're just following the contract, and therefore I'm entitled by attorney's fees to enforce the contract. And that made perfect sense to me. Um, however, <laughs> Court of Appeals says I don't, apparently what makes sense to me didn't make sense to them. And what they said was, garnishments are an independent action. And while 12, 15, 80 paren, e paren, provides that in a garnishment proceeding, the prevailing party may be awarded costs and fees, which is what we quote all the time, Court of Appeals said, yeah, they should be, but they can't be assessed against the judgment debtor, the one playing the games, unless you, the judge, find that the judgment debtor has objected to the writ solely for the purposes of delay and to harass the judgment creditor. Okay, so, I mean, most defendants who are more sophisticated obviously try to play hide the ball. I mean, that's, I mean, frankly, that's their job. I mean, you know, I, can't, I get irritated, I can't blame them. That's what, they're, that's what they're paid to do. However, I think what you're going to see is fewer requests for attorney's fees on garnishment matters, but in those five or seven or ten cases that come, come to a process where we know the judgment debtor is basically playing games, we will ask the court to make a finding that, make a finding up front, and then basically put you on notice that we are going to ask for attorney's fees in the back end based upon 1580E. Uh, to, to make a finding that the issue was that the defendant acted with the uh, purpose of delay or harass the judgment creditor. So you'll have less issues coming along the way on that. But on the ones that you do, frankly, you'll know in your gut because you'll have watched the, 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 the garnishment hearing on this fourth garnishment hearing while the defendant fails to do whatever they've been told to do. Okay. I think I'm, I'm there. Sorry, guys. It's so fast. Hi, I'm Amy. I'm, I've been an HOA lawyer for the last three years, and prior to that, I did a lot of real estate work, a lot of general business work, and there's night and day between these two areas of law. Um, we're dealing, obviously, mostly with individuals, unsophisticated, they're homeowners. Probably this is the only time that they've ever been in a courtroom setting. Um, there are some things, though, that I would like the justices to keep in mind when you look at attorney's fees applications that come across your desk. Number one, HOA associations, they're nonprofit corporations. So when they appear in court, unless it's small claims, they have to be represented by an attorney. The other thing that we'd like you to keep in mind is that all of the officers for an association, they're volunteers. They're not employees of the corporation. They're all homeowners, just like the person who is the defendant in the case. 
The other thing is the dues that are paid by the homeowners who pay their dues are what pays our attorney's fees. So when attorney's fees are slashed across the board to just a single amount, the people who pay our fees are all the other homeowners who pay their assessments every month on time and in full. So those are some of the things that we just would like you to keep in mind when you're looking at the fee applications. Um, these are contracts, uh, Pine Top Lakes versus uh, Hash, determined back in 1983 that the declarations, the CCNRs, are contracts and are to be um, evaluated as a contract. I've been doing this, like I said, for three years. I think there's only one declaration that I've run across that does not have some provision for attorney's fees. Most of the time, they will be, they will say reasonable attorney's fees. They, some of them say all attorney's fees. Um, some of them will say reasonable attorney's fees, but all costs involved. So you need to look at the actual language because in my fee application, I point out I highlight the part of the declaration. I put tabs on the part that tell you this is what you need to look at to determine whether the fee is reasonable. Um, case law, contractual, contractual provisions for attorney's fees are, are enforced according to their terms, and courts lack the discretion to refuse to award fees under such provisions. And that one is Chase Bank, Arizona versus Acosta. Uh, 1994 case. Um, when it comes to costs, those are the things that are what we would consider litigation expenses, um, postage, photocopy fees, and so on and so forth. I would ask you to look at Schritter versus State Farm, where the court said that other disbursements that are made or incurred pursuant to an order are an agreement of the parties. Again, the declaration is an agreement of the parties. When a homeowner decides that they want to buy a property in a homeowner's association, they are agreeing to the terms of that declaration. Um, in addition, though it doesn't apply in justice court, the Condo Act and the Planned Community Act both contemplate that there will be attorney's fees involved with enforcing the terms of the declaration. And that's actually what we're doing. The assessments that we are seeking to be reimbursed to the association are part and parcel of every declaration that we come across from that. And every declaration talks about those being a lien um, against the property. And there are certain evaluations that we need to make every time we get a new case as to in what category those assessments fall. The law allows the last three years to be part of the lien against the property. But under contract, the last six years can be sought. Um, so those are some of the considerations that we have to take a look at. So I just briefly want to go over the standard life of the case. In our office, we get the case in. We get a ledger, which I'm sure you've all seen if you've done any HOA cases, you see the ledger. We have to evaluate the ledger and make sure that all of the charges on the ledger are valid, that the assessments have been properly imposed, late fees have been, have been properly imposed, 
um, and that the fines are reasonable because, as you all know, there are going to be fines when people don't weed their yard or fail to paint their house or any number of things that, that they're being done for. So we have to evaluate that. In our office for justice, justice court cases, we do our best to have our paralegals do that work. And in keeping with the previous panel, our fee agreements do inform the clients that whenever possible, in order to keep the cost low, we utilize our paralegals. In our office, every single paralegal has been with our firm and has been doing HOA work for more than five years. Several of them have been doing this work for more than 10 years. So we utilize them and their experience as much as we possibly can. Um, once we evaluate the ledger and we make any corrections or suggestions to the client about how they need to either reduce fees or reduce the fines, um, you know, maybe they've inaccurately double charged the late fee, it happens, we point that out to them. So we do our best on the front end to make sure that the ledger is accurate before we ever take another step. Then the next step is we need to do a demand letter. We have to follow the provisions of the Federal Debt Collection Practices Act and give the homeowner 30 days to dispute the debt. So we send out at least one demand letter. Then we file the complaint. We do our best, as I said, to keep the costs as little as possible, so we try to utilize our paralegals to do the initial draft of the complaint. We file it, then comes the fun part of trying to serve people. And as you know, I'm sure you've seen applications from my office and other offices where we've asked for alternative service. Either we've asked to post the property or we've ended up having to publish because they don't want to be found, they don't want to be served with this lawsuit. That gets expensive. Um, then if they are served with process, they don't respond, we do our application and affidavit of, um, for entry of default, and then after that, we do our request for entry of default judgment. In my office, we, the attorneys, do the application for entry of default judgment, the China Dial affidavit, and so on, but we bill at our paralegal rate. So very often, we get the feeling that no one's looking at our billing to see that we are not even billing at the full attorney rate. We're billing at a reduced rate. So um, right off the top, we're trying to keep the cost as as low as possible for everyone. And then, of course, we get our judgment. Now, anywhere along this timeline, we can get a call from the homeowner. They want to negotiate. We enter into negotiations. We reach what we think is a reasonable offer. They are asked to make their first payment, and we never see it. Anywhere along this timeline, someone files bankruptcy. So the automatic stay kicks in and we can't do anything. So we have to sit and wait to find out what happens with the bankruptcy. I've had defendants file bankruptcy three times during the course of a case. They file, they don't follow the law, they don't, they don't pay their fee, or they don't file some sort of paper in the bankruptcy court that allows their case to go forward, they fail to show up at their creditor meeting, any number of reasons why their case gets dismissed, but I can't do anything until that happens. I have to monitor, well, not me, but the office monitors those bankruptcy cases <coughs> to see where they are and when we can go up, uh, either 
reinstate the case or we have to start the process over again, do a new demand letter and so on. Then there's the issue of the trustee sale. And people don't pay their mortgages at the same rate they don't pay their HOAs. So if a trustee sale is noticed, that impacts the debt that's owed to my client. So why would we want to continue with a case when we're faced with a person who may end up losing their property? And at that point, we have liquidated damages because they've stopped owning the property if the trustee sale goes forward. If they end up negotiating with their lender and reinstating their mortgage, they still owe the debt to us whether the trustee sale occurs or not. The difference is that as long as they own that property every single month or every single quarter, there's another assessment that comes due. So all along this continuum, we have to constantly make sure that the amount that we are asking to be paid is correct. So we have to keep looking at the ledger and monitoring those things. So those are some of the considerations that occur in our office and cause the case to be more than $400. Even your average case, it's very difficult for us to bring it in our office for under $1,200, just bare bones, as little as possible. But we spend time doing those $20 affidavits because, number one, it's an affidavit. I'm swearing to the court, as an officer of the court, that the contents are accurate, true and correct and reasonable. Every single China Dow affidavit that I file has a copy of the contemporaneous billings. And I bill, when I do something, I bill the time. I don't wait till the end of the month and fill out my timesheets. I bill it that day when I do it. So what we're asking for is the justices to actually review our China Dow affidavits. And just because you get the same declaration, the same exhibits, the content of the exhibit itself might be different. We're not going to build a case the same way every time because every case is not the same. And I will be honest, just like David, this is the first time that I have ever seen one of these. This is the ruling on attorney's fees. I have never, ever had one of these returned to me. And every single time that we make an application for attorney's fees, we specifically ask you to give us findings of fact and conclusions of law if you're going to reduce our fees. Because we have no way of knowing why you've done what you've done. Part of that is an education for us as well. So we know what you're looking at, what is, is of concern to you, and if you don't tell us, we can't fix it. So I'm going to turn it over to Scott. My law school professors told me you always stand when you address judges, so I'm going to uh, <laughs> do my best to be respectful here today. I've been a lawyer in Arizona representing community associations for about 21 years. It's all I've ever done, and uh, I don't know much about a lot of things, but I know a little bit about this. And I guess on this topic, it's one of those things where the lawyers are getting paid either way. As Edie said, this money uh, that's paying these lawyers is going to be absorbed by the community anyway. And I'll, I'll leave it to you to ponder for a nanosecond, if you'd like, what's ultimately fair. You might say, well, the defendant shouldn't have to pay all of those fees by saying that 
the other owners in that community are by definition going to pay the difference. Now, maybe a small slice of it, if you have a thousand homes in the community, each home is paying one 999th of the fees that you didn't award. If you don't award $100, then everybody's paying, what, a penny? Um, but in theory, that's what's happening. And so ponder this for a moment. Uh, there's a litigation over a contract. It's in superior court, but you're the judge. And at the end of that contested trial, there's a fee application by the plaintiff, the winner, for a million dollars in attorney's fees. A million dollar fee application. The defendant says, that's outrageous. You've got to be kidding me. We were only litigating a case over $250,000. How can the plaintiff ask for a million dollars in attorney's fees? That's clearly excessive. It's outrageous. The law is quite clear, going back to China Doll in 1985 and the cases since then that say the burden's on the defendant to identify specific injuries. Now, with a million dollar fee application, perhaps the defendant is going to ask for an evidentiary hearing where the attorneys who made the China Doll affidavit are going to be forced to take the witness stand and answer questions about their application, the time that they spent, the research hours, the associate's experience, etc. They might even hire expert witnesses, other attorneys in town who have experience in complex litigation. They're, the trial on the attorney's fees application, I say trial, the evidentiary hearing might last a week. And there might be 20 witnesses in that scenario. At the end of that evidentiary hearing, it's not hard to imagine that the trial judge might say, well, here are my findings. Uh, the expert witness hired by the defendant identified 87.2 hours of research that was done by an associate at the hourly rate of $600 an hour. And I'm identifying that 87.2 hours at $600 an hour by a, an associate attorney one year out of law school as unreasonable. Now the plaintiff who's got the million dollar fee application has to say, gosh, at least I know. That's clear. The defendant satisfied their burden-shifting obligation to identify specific entries. They did it with articulation, and the court then has the ability to make a decision about what's reasonable under those circumstances. We simply have to admit that in justice court, it doesn't work that way. We know it, you know it, and that's what makes it challenging. When you're faced with a $1,200 application for fees in a justice court case, and your instinct is to $400, it is not practical to haul the plaintiff attorney in for an evidentiary hearing, and the defendant's not there anyway. So now it's up to the judge to essentially decide as advocate in one part of your brain for the defendant if the fee is reasonable, and we appreciate that that's difficult. The challenge that we have as lawyers in this area is that uh, we believe the case law stands on its own. We believe it says what it says. So China Doll gets talked about a lot, but if you go back and read China Doll from 1985, really the seminal case in Arizona on this topic, there are a couple of provisions that don't get talked about a whole lot. And in my research, and of course I'm a partisan, uh, I don't apply all discounts necessary to what I'm about to say. Do your own uh, investigation. But China Doll has a couple of provisions that we don't mention a lot. They go something like this. Uh, the beginning point in awarding a reasonable fee is the determination of the actual billing rate which the lawyer charged. The court goes on to say, 
in corporate and commercial litigation, and our clients are corporations, nonprofit albeit, but it is corporate litigation, there is no need to determine the reasonable hourly rate prevailing in the community for similar work because the rate charged by the lawyer to the client is the best indication of what is reasonable under the circumstances of the particular case. I suppose that's why this idea that uh, the landlord-tenant lawyers charge X and the HOA lawyers seem to charge more, or the credit card lawyers charge Y, uh, kind of bothers us a little bit. I won't put words in Edie's mouth. They bother me a little bit because of the work that we're doing and how important it is to our client for this, this money to be collected. So we don't think it's appropriate under the case law for HOA attorneys to be lumped in with attorneys doing other work. And even if it were similar work, the court has said we're not when, when we decide fee awards, we're not determining sort of the average or the prevailing rates out there by attorneys in this area. The other thing that uh, is still good law, as I understand it, is a couple of cases which don't get a lot of mention, Dillig v. Fisher and State XREL Corbin v. Toko. And, and what those court cases basically say is that the defendant, and again, I know we're talking about the defendant not being there, but the defendant has to identify specific entries and specific tasks that can't be under, shouldn't have been undertaken or are unreasonable. And we do this because we have an adversarial judicial system. Uh, the whole idea is that you put the plaintiff in the room and the defendant in the room and they tangle and tussle and, and when they're all done, uh, justice uh, becomes apparent to the trier of fact and, and, and to the judge. And so when we don't have this back and forth, it becomes difficult. But in fairness to the plaintiff, if the defendant is required to do something more than simply say it's clearly excessive or it's exorbitant, then we believe respectfully that when the judge is going to sit in the shoes of the defendant and determine that a fee is clearly excessive, exorbitant, or unreasonable, that the court should articulate a basis for that that is rooted in the same requirement that a defendant would have to do under the same or similar circumstances. Specifically, identify specific entries that would not have been undertaken by a reasonable and prudent lawyer under the same or similar circumstances. I was not asked to critique your form, but I will close by simply saying, when you look at this form, uh, I believe the form would satisfy the case law if, under the section where it says additional findings, specific entries were identified. Anything less than that, in my office, we are going to ponder respectfully whether a ruling on this form should be appealed. Because by lumping the entire Chinadol affidavit together under number one, the amount of time spent is not reasonable, does not identify specific entries that would have not been undertaken by a reasonable and prudent lawyer in the same sort of circumstances. And if you go down to all of these bullet points, um, they're really just another way of saying, in total, it's not, a, it's not good enough. And I submit to you that under the case law, a conclusion that says, in toto, it's not good enough, is not sufficient. I did quick uh, Westlaw research yesterday and uh, looked at a couple of cases, shepherdized them, made sure they were still good law, and I found an unpublished decision 
unpublished, we don't cite it in your courts, but for today, thought it might be interesting to say, what is the Court of Appeals saying on this topic? In 2012, there was an HOA case called Garden Lakes v. Zizzleberger, uh, unpublished, you find it in Westlaw, uh, but it's instructive as to what the Court of Appeals judicial attitude is. And they talk about China Doll, of course, that's still good law. They mention State X-Rail Corbin v. Toco, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, they mention McDowell Mountain Ranch, which has been discussed today. And what it essentially says is that uh, after the party seeking fees establishes prima facie entitlement, that is, connect the dots between we won, the CCNR saved to get our fees when we won, that's the prima facie, on its face we're entitled. The party opposing the fees must show they were clearly excessive. That's what we know. An opposing party does not meet that burden merely by asserting broad challenges to the application. It is not enough simply to state, for example, that the hours claimed are excessive and the rates submitted too high. So the Court of Appeals on published decision going back to state ex-rail Corbin v. Toko. Then uh, the court goes on to say that the Zisselberger specifically challenged the fees for appearing at the garnishment hearing, which is what this case was sort of about, uh, and generally argued that the remaining fees were unreasonable. And the court held that the uh, attack on the rest of the fees, in other words, they could attack the garnishment hearing fees because they were being specific. But the generic attack on the rest of the fees as being unreasonable did not meet the requirement in our adversarial system for the other side to simply say, this is the entry and this is the task that was unreasonable. Here's why it's so ridiculous. If the defendant says, when looking at a China doll affidavit, again, assuming that the defendant's in the room, those fees are unreasonable, they're excessive, and they're too high, the plaintiff can only say one thing. No, they're not. That doesn't help you. How, how are you going to decide what's reasonable when the only conversation that's occurring is, these are my fees and we assert that they're reasonable. The defendant says, they're not. And the plaintiff says, yeah, they are. If I were a judge, I would find that to be ridiculously frustrating. Uh, and I would say to the defendant, uh, you gotta do better than that under the case law exactly what is the problem with the fees, and then we'll look at it, we'll talk about it, and if we have to have an evidentiary hearing to get the lawyer in here to explain it, we'll do it. We readily concede that on a default, you don't have the people in the courtroom, you don't have the easy ability to do that. And that, I suppose, is where I'll leave the challenge in your hands respectfully to figure out how to meet the obligation of the case law, to be fair to our clients and the homeowners who are gonna be stuck with the bill if the homeowner who didn't pay doesn't have to pay the attorney's fees. And of course, uh, when Carpenter Hazelwood and its attorneys practice in front of your courts, we will do whatever you need us to do uh, to help you make a decision on these fee requests. Thanks. Okay, thank you for holding your questions. We're gonna switch on to the defense panel. And Honorable Will Hudson uh, was appointed to the Phoenix Municipal Court bench last June. Uh, would you believe back in 1992, he went to the College of Trial Advocacy, where he was partnered with another young and ruggedly handsome litigator. And I actually taught Will everything he knows about wearing hats. 
As a senior partner of Hudson and Associates, Judge Hudson tried hundreds of cases, primarily in the areas of criminal defense and civil litigation, and he represented several corporations and government entities. He also worked in the Attorney General's office and served an externship with the Arizona Court of Appeals. Corey Pachnajad is a trial attorney at Smith Pachnajad. His practice areas are civil litigation, commercial litigation, and personal injury. He's been featured on radio and television. He has previously law clerk for presiding Judge Barbara Mundell and presiding civil judge Mark Asito for the Superior Court. And Beverly Parker began working for Southern Arizona Legal Aid as the managing attorney in charge of consumer housing and public benefits in 2008. Her primary work is in the area of bankruptcy and foreclosure defense. She also handles landlord tenant cases. In 2013, she was awarded the Sharon A. Fulmer Legal Aid Attorney of the Year Award by the Arizona Bar Association. Good morning. Really quiet in here today. I know a lot of you guys uh, from NJO, uh, you're not quiet, but today you are for some reason. Perk up a little bit. You can't ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Williams, keep it down in the peanut gallery. Uh, I really have no stake in the game. I have no meat in this. I come from purely a perspective of trying to get it right, trying to be fair. Judges are the gatekeepers of the courtroom. It's our job to make sure that things are done fairly. I'm not saying anybody else is uh, being biased, but my position on this is a little bit different than the last panels. And if, if you go to McDowell Mountain Ranch, and I know most of you know this case probably better than I do, but the court makes it clear that you know the general rule is to enforce in accordance with the letters, the letter of the contract, the contractual provision that provides for attorney's fees unless it is clearly unreasonable. And it goes on to use the terms facially unreasonable, excessive. And the part of the holding that I like the most is that it says that the court may inquire into the reasonableness of a contractual agreement for attorney's fees when the requested fees are manifestly excessive. Who makes the determination of whether those fees are manifestly excessive? You talked earlier about uh, default judgments. There's not a party there. So if someone comes in with a $2,300 request or $2,000, $1,500 request for attorney's fees, and you've seen the same request over and over and over again, the only thing different in it is the names and the amounts. Can you determine whether or not, to, to your court, whether that appears to be manifestly excessive? Sure you can. So what can you do? You need to make a record. McDowell Mountain Ranch goes on in, well, we're only going to talk about this briefly. I was going to come up here and basically do the same presentation the first panel did on ethical considerations, but that's already been done, so we won't cover that. Uh, we won't cover that ground again. But what happened to McDowell Mountain Ranch? Judge Albrecht gave an award of 50% of the attorney's fees that were requested. There was a contractual agreement that all the attorney's fees would be paid. She was reversed. But does that mean that she was improper in reducing those fees 50%? No. What it means is, and the court said it pretty clearly, that if she had made a record giving any detail as to why she reduced those fees to 50%, they were not going to reverse it. Remember, the standard for, re for reviewing attorney's fees is what? 
It's abuse of discretion. Abuse of discretion, that means that someone else, nor the court, would have found in the same way that you did. They're not going to micromanage you. There's another case uh, that I won't go into, but basically it says that unless your decision is unreasonable, that it will not be reversed. They're not going to sit there and be in the place of the trial court and determine what you find to be excessive. You're in the best position to do that. And my, my two co-presenters are going to go further into that. But I just wanted to, I was listening to this last presentation and I would have been remiss if I hadn't addressed that issue. Mostly what we see in the municipal court, and I believe you all see a lot of these as well, is orders of protection and injunctions against harassment. They're civil in nature. I don't know how many of you, I can just see a brief, raise your hands, how many of you all do those? And do a significant amount of those. We have, a, we have a fair amount of those that come in, and I, I don't want to be cynical, but I think they're precursors to family law litigation. We have attorneys with, well, I'm just, you know, we see attorneys come in that are, um, you know, and frankly, I'll inquire, if, you know, counsel, is this going to be in family court matter? Is this going to be filed in superior court shortly? And sometimes they're evasive, and when they are evasive, I'm pretty sure that's what's happening. Uh, a lot of them are just uh, discovery, attempts to get free discovery. But what we see in those matters, I had one in front of me uh, probably a week ago, and they were crossovers. And in this particular case, I had an individual that they were never married. Uh, they had been, I don't even know if they could be called a couple. They were friends of benefits. And in that relationship, one of them decided to break it off. And from January until April 28th, beginning of January to April 28th, oh, excuse me, the defendant was represented by counsel. The plaintiff was not. But from January until April 28th, the plaintiff in, the, in this matter had called the defendant uh, thousand and seven times. The plaintiff had also text messages the defendant a thousand times. And then there were probably about 500 Facebook entries. I went carefully through the uh, petition, and I gave all the time that was needed to go over the allegations of the petition. And at the conclusion of the uh, the evidence on the petition, I stopped plaintiff, I mean defense counsel, and said, "You know, counsel, you don't need to be heard. The petition is going to be denied." Counsel stood up. The owner had a chance to cross-examine or examine the plaintiff in this matter. Well, the bells are going off. Okay, this is the discovery. This is all about discovery. And you know, we, I tell him again, it's not necessary. I'm denying the petition. You can go sit down. Counsel was insisting on cross-examining the plaintiff. At the time, I, I told counsel that it wouldn't happen. I denied the complaint, and counsel wanted to ask for attorney's fees being there. What do we consider? What are the considerations? What do the RPOPs say? Oh, excuse me. Give me one second because I left my material at my desk. And account if you all want to join in while I. No. If you haven't already signed in, make sure that you've signed in to receive credit. Again, if you're uh, planning on leaving early in order to get your parking validated, you'll need to go down to the second floor judicial administration building. The restrooms are out the door to the right, and we'll allow plenty of time for questions during the judges' panel. 
everybody familiar with the uh, rules of protective orders and procedures? Okay, so what do we consider? And, and it says, in determining whether to award costs and attorney's fees, consideration includes the merits of the claim or defense asserted by the unsuccessful party, whether the award would pose an extreme hardship on the unsuccessful party, and whether the award may deter others from making valid claims. Based on what I've told you, how many of you would have awarded attorney's fees in that matter? Show of hands, how many? Two? Uh, I did not award the attorney's fees. I, I didn't think it was appropriate. When it comes to, uh, and this is just my personal opinion, but when it comes to protective orders, orders, protections, injunctions against harassment, even though I thought the behavior by the plaintiff was extreme, the big considerations for me are, would it deter others from making other valid claims? And based on that, I didn't do that. I'm not saying what I did was right. Everyone's courtroom is their own. You make that decision for yourself. But I particularly, generally, don't award them. Um, we did have a judge uh, a couple of weeks earlier award $3,500 in attorney's fees for an order of protection. And, and I think this year we probably had two judges out of probably thousands of requests for I mean, injunctions against harassment, probably a few hundred requests for attorney's fees awarded. Are there any questions? Oh, no. Hi, I'm Beverly Parker. I'm not from here. I'm from Southern Arizona, Relay, which obviously has nothing to do with what happens here. But, uh, you know, and I was asked to talk about um, defense positions on, am I talking close enough? The defense, uh, what we do in defending these cases. And so, I came up with a little PowerPoint that I thought might be helpful to you, and you'll probably uh, find it less helpful. But who does the justice see in, uh, at the defense table when the issue of attorney's fees awards is raised in a default case? No one, okay? We're not there. None of us are there to talk to you or raise objections to the attorney's fees awards, and why aren't we? Well, the reason's fairly simple. The defendant knows they owe the debt. They're not there. They can't, if they owe the debt, they don't have the money to pay for an attorney to come in and challenge the debt or the attorney's fees. Um, often the amount of debt in controversy is relatively small, so that hiring an attorney to challenge them um, is, to defend a claim that has no defense, is kind of non-productive. Um, and if we do take the case, aren't we being a bit unethical ourselves? Being delayed and I don't charge my clients, you know, it's not an unethical issue because they're not losing money, but it is an undue use of my time when I could use it someplace else. If the attorney takes the case to contest the reasonableness of the fee, isn't he merely, in, he or she merely increasing the amount of fee that might be requested at the end of the day? Isn't this an ethical issue for us? And finally, if all of those are valid reasons for not being there, who's left to make the determination? Well, that would be you. Okay, now I've heard some talk and I looked at the materials that were being presented here. Um, and one of the arguments I saw, which I thought was remarkable, was that if there's no one on the other side of the defense bench, then you must accept everything that the plaintiff says without question. And that's 
kind of like the logic of some of the arguments that I've seen in, in the, the materials. Now, I don't, these plaintiffs bar here, I'm sure, are very ethical. I know Mr. Hamroff from dealings with my boss, Anthony Young. He's a great lawyer. I don't know the other two. But I'm sure they don't have the issues that I see that come into justice court or that come across my desk at legal aid. Um, and what we do see are a lot of abuses. So when you want to talk about what's reasonable, and I agree that saying a flat fee of $400 is, is, should be the norm. I don't agree with that. I don't think that has any rational basis. I do think you do have to look at the ethical basis for an award. You have to ask questions, and you have that right. You're the court. If a plaintiff says you can't ask a question about the case before you, then why are you there? That's your job. You're not sitting or standing in the shoes of the defendant. You're standing at the front of the gate. And that's what you are supposed to be doing, is asking questions. And if something doesn't smell right, then find out what it is. Is it just Limburger cheese? Or is it a rat? Okay, is it excessive? Um, I, out of self-protection, I guess, um, actually have an HOA in the community where I live, and I joined the board of directors to make sure that things weren't being abused. And I found out a lot about that. Uh, one is, yes, we're all volunteers, but two, we have management companies. And some of these HOA associations are thousands of homes, and they have huge management companies, and guess where they get their fees? From the late fees, from the management fees, from a whole bunch of other things. Uh, so that you're really, the HOA itself may not know exactly what's going on in justice court, in a case that's being presented by not these attorneys, but other attorneys. For example, um, I asked Judge McMurray, I said, when you have these HOA applications before you, do you look at the retainer agreement between, or the fee agreement between the, the attorney and the HOA? Do you have one? And often, he said he's never seen one. Am I right? Am I quoting you right, Judge? Okay, I see that they quote the CCNRs, but I don't see them showing a retainer agreement. And you know, you know, not that I would, let's say this hypothetically then, I wouldn't impugn anybody's character, but if they're not showing you the retainer agreement, I wonder if the HOA would have agreed to the fees that they're requesting. Because that's a big issue. When I see, and I have seen them, a lawsuit being filed for $300 in HOA dues and the, posing, and the plaintiff's counsel, counsel asking for $1,500 in attorney's fees in a default case, bells and whistles go off. Because that's not reasonable. That case should be in small claims court. Or it shouldn't be in court at all because it's not big enough. Now, I gave you a number um, of case examples, things that I really like. But, you know, of course, the, the, the China doll is a good one. But it says the starting point is the retainer agreement, not, not, not the CCNRs. It's the retainer agreement between the, the client and the HOA. But I'm from other states, okay? I, I came to Arizona because I like it here. Uh, I used to practice in southern Florida, which is really known for its sharks, not just in the sea. And oftentimes, um, you know, Run into attorneys that are fly-by-nights, you shake hands with them and you count your fingers afterwards. Uh, but we had cases where 
things would come up all the time over issues of attorney's fees. And I, I, I loved the case. I'm not going to repeat what was done in um, the uh, China Doll case, because you guys can read. I know that. So I don't need to repeat what's already been told to you three or four times. But there are other cases where we've seen attorneys who, reputable attorneys, who have done unreasonable billing units. For example, um, well, before I get to that, I want to point out one thing. Legal aid attorneys can ask for attorney's fees. We are not representing the plaintiffs in these cases. We're representing the defendants. They don't get to say, we get a free ride because you're not charging your client. Now, I always have a, a retainer agreement with my clients. And in that agreement, I inform my clients, I'm not going to charge you, but you agree that I can go after the other side if, I am the pre if we are the prevailing party. And that's not been an issue for most cases, but for those of you who are wondering whether or not it is an issue, there's actually a Supreme Court case on point, which is, let me find it. Gulf Homes versus Gonzalez actually came out of Southern Arizona Legal Aid. And bottom line, it's just because our principal funder, the Legal Services Corporation, which is a quasi-federal agency, uh, doesn't let us charge our clients' attorney's fees, doesn't mean that that has anything to do with the practice of law in this state. And we're allowed to ask for that. Again, we're subject to the same ethical considerations that any other attorney is under. But some of the other cases that I've seen, and the one that I really like is the Brown versus Costales case because I knew the other attorney on that case. And um, the, the attorney in that case, and you'll find some in Arizona that say the same thing, that unit billing by itself is not necessarily a good idea because if you're billing, um, even if it's contemporaneous, we can't break it down minute by minute. So usually people do in 0.10, 0.2, 0.3 tenths of an hour. And in this case, um, Brian Hurst, the attorney that appealed his attorney's fees award case, um, said he did a minimum unit billing of three tenths of an hour for stuffing an envelope, putting a stamp on it, and licking it, the court said, no doubt with his silver tongue. Uh, <laughs> and this is a board-certified family lawyer, but his fees were excessive, and they pointed out, you didn't get any equitable distribution, you didn't get any permanent alimony, you've got $10,000 in uh, temporary support, and you're asking for $20,000. This does not sound good. Okay, and they said, yeah, the, I, I think he actually had to talk to the bar after that. But um, unit billing can only be reasonable if it's associated with a reasonable effort. Uh, sometimes I have discussions with some of my OCD uh, associates who will, point, who will charge 0.1 for reading my email, 0.1 for uh, sending me a response, and 0.1 for saving it to their file. And I point out to them, you know, you just spent 15 minutes on, oh, actually 18 minutes on something that really only took you two. You need to consolidate some of this and make what you're charging your time to reasonable. Okay? And that's common sense. You don't have to be a rocket science. You don't have to be a lawyer. You, you can be a JP and do this, and, and it's just the smell test that you're looking at. There's some other cases in here that I, I like. The in-ray guardianship of sleeves, that was one where I think, quite frankly, the attorney ran rampant over the rights of the ward that he was supposedly helping and charged or asked to charge 
thousands of dollars for benefits that didn't accrue to the guardian. And the court pointed out that the, uh, actually the, the ward, the, the guardian had no financial stake in the particular picture. Uh, so that they really weren't guarding the assets of the, the ward and the litigation that was being pursued. So everybody was raiding this particular uh, fund. That's, I think, something you have to look at when you're looking at requests for awards of attorney's fees when there's no one on the other side. Who's watching the gate? The, if the client is not there, if the plaintiff's actual plaintiff is not there saying, yeah, we think this is reasonable, then you've only got uh, the voice of the plaintiff talking, which is the attorney. Now, a couple of issues that I wanted to address that I heard from other people. I don't know about you guys, but I've tried to call sometimes the attorneys, not you guys, certainly, but the attorneys representing the HLAs, and I never get them. It's kind of like calling the attorneys who are doing the foreclosures. You get the paralegal if you're lucky, and you don't get a response, no one calls you back. Even if you're an attorney, it doesn't happen. Okay? So let's be realistic here. These are businesses that run on a smoothly flowing machine, and a lot of their stuff is form pleading. Um, but the homeowner's not always going to be able to talk to the, uh, to the individual. The attorneys can't talk to them, not the homeowner. Um, trustees sale, with HOA fees, even if there's a trustee sale, the trustees' assessments have a much higher priority um, than even the trustee will get in the sale of the mortgage. They not only have the right to assess a lien against the property, but they have an independent right to garnish, and there's no election of remedies there. So I always tell my clients, whom I put in bankruptcy sometimes to try to save the home, continue to pay the HOA fees during the pendency of this bankruptcy, and if they refuse to accept payment, then you let me know so I can tell the court. Because that happens, and they get hit with more late fees, which again is a violation of the stay. Um, this is, you know, we all went through a housing meltdown. And the last remnants of that are what we are now seeing, which is the, the coming of the HOAs to assess and collect their fees. Because, quite frankly, when the, when the trustee sales were going on and the, and the homeowners were disappearing, they had no remedies. So the last part of this meltdown that we have had for the last five or six years is now appearing in your court. I think it's a serious issue um, because I have seen homeowners who have saved their home but all of a sudden have been faced with huge fees after they've actually saved their house. And something has to be done there to make sure that the equity of the request and the rights of the homeowners association are all respected. So those are my comments. Thank you. Just briefly, the, um, the case that uh, holds the, the review of attorney's fees is abuse of discretion is Geller versus Lust. If you want to cite for it, I'll give it to you after this presentation. It's in it material. material. Okay. Yeah. And then um, there was a comment made about the uh, China Dow, China Dow affidavit, uh, the China Dow saying basically that if the fees are agreed to, that you have to award them. And uh, I, I believe that the economics of law practice was published after China Dow. And I believe the purpose of that was in part so that we could look and see whether fees were reasonable or clearly excessive. 
And then uh, finally, uh, uh, the example that I gave is, is hypothetical. <laughs> of course it is. It didn't actually happen. All right. Uh, let's lighten the mood a little bit. I see some familiar faces. Judge Williams, hi. Judge McMurray, Judge Meyerson. Uh, your eyes do not deceive you. This is indeed the title of my presentation for two reasons. One, because I don't really think anybody else would take it, so it's unique. You're not there yet. Where is it? There it is. Yes. And two, because there's actually a lot of truth underlying the premise and the context of this title. And I'm, and I'm going to get to that uh, in just a moment. But first, this is who I am, and that's who I represent. Uh, I have been in practice for six going on seven years. And uh, you've already seen the types of things I've done in the packet. Uh, but there's one thing that isn't in the packet that is important, and I'd like to tell you about it today. Uh, when I was 17 years old, I was an intern for uh, Justice of the Peace, the Bronski. Uh, by show of hands, who remembers? Yeah. Okay. Uh, back then, Scottsdale didn't have multiple judicial districts. It was just the Scottsdale Justice Court, and uh, Mark Dabronski was the JP. Uh, Judge Williams, can you please uh, share with everybody what happened to Judge Dabronski, if you remember? Well, he was essentially removed from office by the Commission on Judicial Conduct. Yes. He was, and, and, and why? Because, well, when I was 17 years old, this was very entertaining. Uh, when a defendant would show up, he would say, uh, what's your name? And inevitably, the defendant would say, uh, Jose Ramirez. And Judge Dabronski's response would be, Jose, well, where's Jose B? <laughs> and that kind of thing got him in trouble. So, <laughs> rightly so. Um, he, did some, he had some other antics. Uh, again, entertaining when you're 17, but as you get older, you realize you shouldn't be doing those sorts of things. After law school, I clerked for uh, presiding Judge Mundell, for presiding civil judge Marcosito. And the, the point I'm getting at is this. I've seen how a bad judge can embarrass and humiliate and ruin a person's life. And I've seen how a good judge, and, and I, I genuinely miss Judge Mundell, and I think Judge Aceto's retiring soon. Uh, good judges like them can really make a positive impact on litigants, uh, not just on their day, but on their life in total. And you have that power. And so um, with that, let me get to why I have titled uh, my presentation, Batman, Spider-Man, and You. Batman protects Gotham, Spider-Man protects New York, more or less, and you protect the good citizens of Maricopa County, if this thing cooperates. Um, and this is an important point. You are genuinely uh, the gatekeeper between uh, financial ruination of defendants that are appearing in your court and the potential for justice being done. It is in the title of your job. You are a justice of the peace. Your job is to administer justice. Now, um, the common misconception is that you have not very much uh, impact, or the, you don't have the ability to make much of an impact because of the low jurisdictional threshold. But in context, the jurisdiction over which you preside is massive. Assuming that we have all the JPs in Maricopa County here, and I don't think we do, but if we did, let's do this for illustrative reasons. There's 4.1 million people in Maricopa County. There's about 6.7 million total in the state of Arizona. You have jurisdiction over 60% collectively in this room of the people in our state. That's a tremendous amount of power. Because the median income of each person in this county is $27,000.
That means you have the ability to impact one-third of the income each year from the residents in our county. You have a tremendous amount of power. And as you know, with great power comes great responsibility. That's good. Right? Okay, so how do you how do you uh, how do you fulfill your role as the, uh, the superhero protector of uh, the defendants and the citizens of Maricopa County? You do that by being the gatekeeper again, as I said, between a fee request that's non-compliant and that which is permissible. And I want you to notice the word I use: non-compliant. It's not what feels right or what looks right or what seems to be right. It has to be compliant with the rules and it has to be compliant with the statutes. Uh, compliance typically turns on this theory of reasonableness. I understand that this is esoteric, but you do have discretion in determining what's reasonable. And this isn't just about the attorney being reasonable. It's also about the court being reasonable and the court's duty to act reasonably in making inquiries of attorneys that are making requests for attorney's fees. So uh, I'm going to talk about attorney's fees that are requested pursuant to 12341.01a. Uh, the plaintiffs did a great job of uh, discussing uh, attorney's fees awards that are requested under contract. My firm has, uh, I think Gary Smith at least, has gone against David Hameroff's firm. We're co-counsel uh, with Edie's firm. Uh, and. Mr. Carpenter, I mean, these are three fantastic plaintiff's attorneys. There's a reason they're here today. These guys do good work. Um, but you should ask yourself this. When somebody comes to you and says, I want fees under 12341.01a, how many of you used to be legislators? By a show of hands. One. I see one. Two. Okay. Give meaning and give, give purpose to the reason behind why these laws were enacted. Because if we start with the premise that your job as a judge is to enforce the laws that the legislature put forth, then you need to ask the attorney about 12341.01b. It's immediately under A. And it says that the purpose, the purpose of making an award is to mitigate the burden, not to shift the burden. You're not supposed to take all the attorney's fees and say, here you go, I'm dumping it on you. It's to mitigate the burden. So you have to make a determination as to what is the appropriate mitigation under the text of the statute. It's black and white, and in this case, it's blue and white. So let's get into the case law. The case law says that you can't make an award of attorney's fees that exceeds the plaintiff's obligation to their attorney. So if the plaintiff and the attorney agree that, uh, I'll do this for you for $500 flat, and the attorney just does a great job and gets a great uh, judgment against the defendant and then turns to the court and says, I deserve $10,000 for this work and it's justified. It's justified by the amount of work I did and he proves to you that he did a reasonable amount of work to justify $10,000 in fees under his hourly rate. He's not entitled to more than $500. Don't take my word for it. Take the Court of Appeals' word for it. All right, now let's get into China. Um, the question is, and this has been brought up a couple of times by the other uh, presenters. How do I know what the attorney agreed to, uh, agreed to be paid by the client? There's at least two ways you can do that. What I've heard is take a look at the, the fee agreement. Yes, please, by all means, take a look at the fee agreement. I'm a plaintiff's attorney and I'm a defense attorney. I will willingly submit that if that's what you ask me to do. Most of my practice is in Superior and Federal Court. Granted, I can't be this animated in Federal Court, so I take it out on you guys. <laughs> Apologies in advance. Um, but uh, the deal is, you can 
you can ask to see the fee agreement, or it's in the text of China Doll itself. Judge Meyerson, bow down to you. The attorney has to state in their fee affidavit what the agreed upon hourly billing rate is. You know what the first sentence is in a fee affidavit? I, so-and-so, swear or affirm upon my oath and under penalty of perjury. If they're lying then, we got bigger problems. But at a minimum, look for this information in the attorney's fee affidavit, the China Doll affidavit. Um, let's take a look at the, the Schwartz versus Schwerin case. Funny to say, still serious though. Um, uh, it talks about what is a reasonable attorney's fee in the context of a quantum Merowith dispute. In, in this case, in, from 1959, uh, there weren't specific details as to the uh, things for which the attorney would be paid, so the court applied quantum merit principles, and the Schwartz case was actually cited in China, though. Uh, the, reason, the reason I put it up there, though, is so you understand the development of how attorney's fees awards came about. The idea has never been, again, to shift the burden. It's not to say, well, I expended this much time and this much money, and so give me my money now. No, you have to engage in an inquiry. And that inquiry starts at a minimum, in, in, in this case in particular, uh, on these four elements. And each of these four elements has uh, subparts that you can engage in. Uh, you can take down the, uh, the citation and, and take a look at those elements specifically on your own time. Uh, I understand that we're short for time right now. Yes, no, are we good? Uh, six minutes. Six minutes, better, hurry. All right. Uh, there's a couple of these sub-elements, though, that I, I think are, are, are important and they're instructive in, in what you guys do every single day. Um, the character of the work to be done in justice court, from what I've seen, uh, is typically, it's important work. Uh, I, I, I have a, a deep admiration and respect for my colleagues on the plaintiff's side here today. But it isn't particularly difficult in the context of securities litigation or patent litigation. This is stuff, and look, Judge Williams touched on this earlier. You see a firm come in, and I've seen this myself. They'll walk in with a banker's box of files, and they'll literally thumb through it and give it to the judge. This is form work for the most part. I'm not saying all plaintiff's work is form work, but some of it is, and you need to recognize that. And that's a relevant element to consider when you're trying to make a determination of whether or not attorney's fees are reasonable, right? And this is if you get past the question of whether or not you need to exercise your discretion to award them at all. So I'm gonna skip past some of the other uh, Schwartz factors. Uh, and I'm gonna go back into China Doll, and like Scott, uh, I'm gonna say this, Judge, if I get this wrong, smack me on the back of the head with the microphone. I do expect to get smacked at some point. Now that I've said that, um, <laughs> the fee application that you receive must be in sufficient detail. That's what I highlighted there because that's what I've seen in my very limited practice in justice court and from also what I saw back uh, when I was interning with uh, Judge Lebronsky, uh, the former Judge Lebronsky. Um, I have seen fee and you, it's incumbent on you to ask questions on whether or not the work that is stated in the fee application was indeed the work that was performed. That's all a part of your gatekeeper role in making sure that you're not making an excessive award. Um, wow, this thing just has a mind of its own. Uh, honestly, I'm not doing this. 
the type of legal services provided, the date the service was provided, the attorney providing the service. I mean, China Goal sets forth a template that you can use when you're looking at a fee affidavit almost side by side, you can say, look, here's what China Doll requires the affidavit to show. Here's how the affidavit's deficient. And that can be taken up at a hearing. Uh, and again, respectfully, I disagree with my colleagues on, on the plaintiff's side here today because you don't need to abdicate your authority just because there's nobody sitting in the defense seat. Your job is to still make sure that you're enforcing the law. And China Doll, last I checked, is still good law. So, Sorry, see? Right? It's not you. It's not me? Okay. For once. Okay. So, uh, finally, let's say you get past all the analysis, you've asked the relevant questions, and the question, the final question now is, what is appropriate? They have all the information here that I needed. They followed China Doll, they followed Schwartz. I'm exercising my discretion to award the fee. But this guy's charging $850 an hour for his time. How do I know if that's reasonable? Simple. That's my copy. You guys are going to have to get your own. No, nope, go back. There you go. The State Bar, every two years, publishes the e uh, economics of law uh, practice in Arizona. And this thing is phenomenal because it has cold, hard, empirical data. And when I'm making an attorney's fees request as a, a prevailing party's attorney on the plaintiff's side, uh, I use direct citations to this book because it's publicly available. It's published by the State Bar, which ostensibly is a disinterested third party. And it has actual numbers that are rooted in fact. So I will cite to this book so that you understand that my fees are reasonable. And, and I submit to you respectfully that you should demand the same of any attorney that appears before you. So if you go to the next slide, this is the type of data you'll see in there. The State Bar has done all the hard work for us. And for those of us who are practicing attorneys, or who were practicing attorneys, uh, if you're a member of the Bar, I don't know, Judge Williams if you are, Judge McMurray if you are, you're paying for this. Um, by your bar dues. And then you also have to pay a little bit extra to get the book, but hey, <laughs> it's there. Um, okay, so I'm going to leave it there. I want you to know that uh, we, we, I genuinely appreciate the hard work that you do. I've seen how stressful it is firsthand, um, and I don't regret your position, but thank you for listening to me today. We're going to take a 15-minute break now. Again, the restrooms are out the door to the right. We'll see you promptly at 10:45. Thank you. Let me clear up something. Find your best practice. chair of the best practice committee when this was done. Please understand, this came up for a problem that we're not really talking about. Did you bring copies of your poems? Yeah, I This came up with some people applying for default charges. And the complaint says, and a reasonable attorney's fee, which in the event of default will be blank. They need blank. Oh, no, they could put 200, 400, 500,000, 2,000. But then they'd apply for default charges. And you don't have a 
China doll out This assumes you don't have a China doll out what we should What we should have done right here in 3.24, where we say alternatively, if there is no China doll affidavit, and then we're going to award $400. Because we had all of these identical applications that were asking for $200 or $2,000. And we decided we shouldn't be consistent. You can't just unilaterally change that. But that was never intended to knock out a China doll. If you look, it says and the best. And it's being used. Well, that's, I'm sorry, I got it. Yeah. That was never the intent.
Alternatively, comma, when there, if there is no China doll affidavit, the court may award a specific amount if it's requested. Should have been there, and we will revise that. But I wanted everybody to understand that was what was intended by this best practice. Thank you, Charlie. Okay, and before we introduce the panel, I do want to point out Coria's uh, PowerPoint uh, he emailed to me at 12.02, didn't last night, so they're not included in your materials. He did print it out, I believe there's some copies there. If you didn't get a copy, I can email that to you. Uh, Commissioner Harris provided two PowerPoints uh, as references that are, are included in your materials. Uh, Professor Hinkshaw is going to introduce the rest of the panel. I do want to point out uh, that Bruce Meyerson, Judge Meyerson, did write the Schweiger versus China Doll case, and Patricia Orozco, uh, Judge Orozco, um, wrote the dissent in the McDowell Mountain case. I did invite the two judges who were in the majority in that case to speak. They are both retired, didn't want to come out of retirement to be here today. <laughs> Um, so I'm going to introduce the person who's going to lead our panel, and we'll introduce the rest of the panelists. Uh, Professor Art Hinshaw teaches at the Lodestar Mediation Clinic in negotiation, among other ADR courses, at the ASU Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. Many of you know he does a lot of great work with our mediators for our justice courts. He previously taught at the University of Missouri School of Law and at the Washington University School of Law in St. Louis and he practiced law in Kansas City. Uh, he is also a member of the Arizona Commission on Judicial Conduct, so everyone needs to behave. Uh, I will be running around this side of the room with microphones. Frank will be running around that side of the room with microphones. We are videoing and autoing, autoing, something like that. Recording, thank you. Uh, so we do want to make sure that we get your questions on tape. Professor? Um, sure. So it's great to be here. I'm going to stand up because I don't have a desk in front of me. Um, and very quickly, Charlie took, you know, basically made the most important parts of the introduction, and that is that everybody here on this panel, of course, I'm not on the panel, everybody here on this panel um, is involved in these very questions in some particular way. So I'm just going to go from closest to me to furthest from me. So we have Commissioner Harris who, as you well know, is the um, civil, uh, the civil, handles the civil appeals for the appellate division of the Superior Court. So if anybody is appealing a, uh, an attorney's fees award, it's going to go to her. Nobody else. She's the one. She's the funnel. It all goes through her. So you said that you wanted to say something very quickly, so let me hand the microphone to you. A totally unrelated commercial. And that is, and some of you I know already do this, but we the people and mock trial organizations through the State Bar the Educational Division for High Schoolers are phenomenal programs. They're always in need of judges. Some of you have been judges. Um, some of you are repeatedly judges. So I'm giving an unsolicited, not asked for, commercial that if you want something that's a whole lot of fun to do, Come be a judge at We the People or Mock Trial. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, so that's a great service that um, happens throughout uh, the country, actually, those kind of programs do. Uh, next on our panel uh, is a retired Justice of the Peace from Pinal County, Judge Lusk. And Judge Lusk had the uh, opportunity to go river rafting last week, so I was very jealous uh, of that. Missed our conference call, lucky you. Um, and we wanted to have him on the panel because we want somebody who sits in your shoes, right? He's dealt on this with frontline just like you have, and so he might be able 
bring some perspectives or some understanding that maybe uh, our appellate panelists uh, don't see um, from um, where you sit. Next is Judge Orozco at the Court of Appeals. And um, like Charlie said, she, wrote, she was one of the panelists or one of the judges on the McDowell Mountain case. She wrote the dissent. And so she's going to be um, talking about um, that and opining about other things. And then finally, we have uh, uh, retired Judge Bruce Meyerson, uh, who wrote the China Doll case. He was proud to say that it is the single most cited case <laughs> in all of Arizona. Um, and so I think he's going to, if he had $10 for every time this case was cited, he would be a very wealthy man. Uh, so our plan uh, to do this panel was we came up with a bunch of hypotheticals that we were going to share with you. Um, and they're in your packet towards the back. They're up there on the screen. But since you haven't had a chance to ask questions and have been chomping at the bit, we thought that it would be better if we would just go ahead and start with questions. And then if you run out of steam on the questions, then we can run to these um, hypotheticals. Um, so I'm going to be the person who is going to point out sort of who's first, who's next in the queue. And I'm going to get your attention. I'll let, I'll let you know. Um, and then uh, I guess the way that I think that we should do it, if you're going to direct your question to a particular judge, um, then do that. Uh, if you're not going to do that, we're just going to go in order of this side to that side. Now, that's the way that that part's going to work. But I want to give our panelists just a quick opportunity, if there's anything from this morning that you want to um, opine on very quickly, add on, think about, suggestions, those sorts of things. Um, so I'm going to put this microphone down, and we'll start with you, Commissioner Harris. OK. First thing I would like to say from this morning that is really important when the cases come up on appeal from your courts is that there be some reason. Because the cases that are coming up on appeal are typical that I'm seeing inherently are ones that are saying they put in a China doll, and the result they've gotten back was a one-liner, basically. Our best practices says, we'll limit it to $400, your attorney fees are $400. That doesn't even tell the litigant or litigants that anybody considered the China doll. So, at least put in something that says, you know, having reviewed the China doll and the, the hours charged and the fee, I found it to be unreasonable or I find it to be reasonable. If all it says is best practices, that's going to most likely come up on appeal to me. Judge Luss? I wasn't here for the first two presentations. I was only here for a little bit of the last one, actually. So I didn't hear both sides of the story. Uh, so I, I really don't want to comment other than uh, I was kind of curious. Charlie invited me rather than someone that's in Maricopa County. And I don't know if that's because he feared I'm pretty much retired. I do pro tem a little bit um, and uh, couldn't irritate anyone too much or whether uh, he wanted a view from outside of uh, Maricopa County. And I not only worked in Canal County, the uh, third biggest county in the state, but for a while I was the county attorney in Greenland County, um, which when the kids have a rock fight, they hide behind the city limit signs. It's a, it's a big, small place. <laughs> <laughs> My name is uh, Pat Orozco. I really don't have any opening comments. You know, one of the things that I, I really regret about uh, our discussion and, and about uh, 
what we call the China Doll Affidavit. Is, <clears throat> and there are many milestones uh, in Arizona where we refer to, to the judge, for example, as the lack of rules. And, and so I'm wondering why we never called it the, the Meyerson <laughs> Affidavit. <laughs> But I, I thought maybe I, I, I do have comments, and I'm sure we're going to have time to talk about McDowell Mountain and other things. But I, I didn't want to share anecdotally how we got to this China Doll decision. I uh, started my practice as a public interest lawyer and started the Arizona Center for Law and the Public Interest and worked as the director for eight years. And so in public interest law, we're always concerned about recovering attorney's fees. So I was very used to filing applications for attorney's fees, mostly under applicable federal statutes. And so when I was appointed to the Court of Appeals uh, in 1982, uh, I was surprised by what I saw in terms of the applications that were coming in and the difficulty it was presenting uh, to the judges on how to make a reasonable decision and, and find uh, fair uh, fees in, in cases. And so after the memorandum decision in uh, Schweiger versus China Doll was entered, and we got the fee application, and we looked at it, or I, I looked at it because I, I was the, the, the assigned judge. Uh, I really thought we, we need to do something about this. We, we really have to set out some procedures here and some rules that will help us make fair decisions. And so I went to the panel, the other two judges. We talked about it, and we decided. Uh, that I would prepare a draft uh, which became the opinion uh, that, uh, that did that. And, and, and it's surprising to me uh, that the principles that we laid out there are still, uh, still sound today. I, I guess that, that truly is surprising. And, uh, and so I do take a fair amount of, of, uh, of, of pride in, in that. So uh, I know we're going to have time to talk about McDowell Mountain and Geller and all these. And, and when we get to that, I, I do have some thoughts about that. Okay, so before we um, get questions from you, the first thing that I want to point out is that any of the opinions you hear are not the opinions of the Court of Appeals. They're not the opinions of the Superior Court. Um, they are personal opinions of everybody uh, or the individual stating those opinions. Um, so I saw this gentleman when I was sitting raise his hand. And so we're going to start with you, sir. Um, and then um, when, after his question, then we'll just start going around and I will select uh, the person who will be um, asking the next question. Thank you very much. My name is Cody Williams, and I am the Justice of the Peace of the South Mountain Justice. One of the dilemmas that I face is that before it gets to an appellate process, one of the things that I was taught when I first took the bench was that if it's not clear, ask for an order to show cause hearing and speak to the attorneys, speak to the plaintiffs, ask questions about what is being presented to you so that when you see $1,400 of fees and $4,200 of law uh, costs, legal fees, that you understand what the basis of those things are. And in trials and in those orders to show cause hearings, many things have come out, one of which is that a lot of the work that subsequently becomes legal fees are done in majority by those management companies or by the HOAs themselves. They're the ones who do the uh, ledgers. They're the ones who do track 
the paintings. They're the ones who perform a lot of the form work that's then passed up to the attorneys. That becomes an issue of how do you apply and take full advantage of all of that work underneath you and then tell the court you want to be reimbursed. We've heard that being said by both the plaintiffs and their witnesses, and that's problematic. The other things we hear is that we hear that we want to make sure that the message is heard by the defendants when we ask for these substantial amounts to make sure that they know that if they don't pay, there's a hammer that we can use, these are quotes. And so it becomes very difficult when we see these things that look like blanket numbers and we do then make some applied decision based on them. And then we hear back from you at the appellate court saying uh, they should be awarded more than you gave them. But we also know that you never tell us how much to give them. <laughs> and because you don't, I still feel I'm in the game. I still feel that I have the ability to continue to make assessments based on the information. Is that what you intend when you send those uh, messages back to us by saying, yes, you should have done something different, but no, we're not telling you how much to give them. I'm going to start off with, um, it's really not my job to say how much the attorney's fees ought to be. It's my job to sit there and say, did you put something down? Because all I have is what's on the paper or the hearings, which I listen to all the time or watch all the time if they happen to be on with the video occasionally. It's my job to say, is there a basis for the award that's done? One of the problems, whatever they may have said to you, is that when you get the judgment, it doesn't say any of that. It doesn't say, I considered this, I considered that. It says, they asked for $4,500, I awarded $700. And they're coming back to me and saying, well, that's unreasonable. Here's all the work we did. And then I've got to look at it and say, well, you produced more than $700 worth of work. Whatever else it should be, it goes back to you, the justices, to determine, because ultimately you're the ones who can determine. To go on from there, I'm in the same position you are when it comes to the appeals. Because on the appeals, they ask for attorney's fees as well. And under the Superior Court Rules of Civil Appellate, of, um, under the Superior Court Rules of Appellate Procedure, I keep calling them scraps, so for now, we're going to just call them scrap civil. Uh, rule 13, I also have to award costs and fees and talk about, you know, kind of adding insult to injury to the defaulted defendant. Now they're asking for fees for their um, appeals. I can tell you what I usually do on most cases. I will look at each one of their charges and see, one, is it actually a charge for attorney work as opposed to other work. And in my mind, there's certain things that are, an attorney may do them, but it's not attorney work. So if on the China doll that they're giving to me, it says, call the court to find out which judicial officer would be assigned. Like three hours. Okay, and I'm looking at that and going, okay, 
We have a $300 fee, an hour fee here. We're asking for $90 to call the court to find out something you probably know, because in the lower court of appeals, there are a total of two judicial officers, Judge McLennan and myself. 99% of the time, Judge McLennan does the administrative appeals and the criminal, and I do the civil. So pretty much you have a pretty good idea who's going to get it. Plus, we always send out a minute entry saying this case has been assigned to. And I say, that's not an attorney's fees. That's not a job done by an attorney. And it's not, to myself at least, it's not a reasonable thing to include in the attorney's fees. Scratch that one. I go through each of their charges. I look at, when I get their attorney fees, China Doll, I will go back and review what they put into their appellate memorandum and see, okay, you submitted a seven-page memorandum to me. You cited one case. I don't think a reasonable attorney with any kind of experience who's asking for $300 an hour could possibly have spent seven hours researching a case, the one case you cited, when it's not a unique proposition. Every once in a while, there are unique propositions. And I couldn't say you may have spent it just looking to find out. There is no law. You checked all the federal law, you checked all the state law, you checked statutes, maybe you even went internationally. Happens every once in a while. So I'll look at that and say, doing research is a typical job of an attorney. Reading an email, and I, one of our panelists addressed that. You know, how long, did, how long was this email? Well, if I have a copy of it, if the email is seven pages, I can see it would take, you know, two-tenths of an hour. If the email is two sentences, I can see it doesn't take time at all. So I'll scratch it and say, yeah, it really didn't take any time to read that email. Um, writing a letter, I'll look, in, if it's in the file, I'll look at the letter. There are some letters that are a page long. There are other letters, notably in one case, where I know of one letter to an attorney that read like an appellate brief to the Court of Appeals, and the letter was 15 pages single-spaced, with all kinds of citations. Um, yeah, that would take more than two-tenths of an hour, no question. But I will go through and review each of the charges that they're saying, and I take a little pen and I strike it out, or I'll put in there and say, well, you asked for three hours for this, but you only came up with two statutes or one statute, you came up with 340-101 and you cited China Doll, Schweiger versus China Doll. Okay, that didn't take you a really long time if you are an attorney that has any experience. It's on your system. You're not gonna get a lot. So that's what I would do on the parts that I'm evaluating. But as far as sending back to justice courts, it's really a justice court's job to evaluate it because you're the ones who heard the case. I'm going to be very candid, I'm not sure I understood the question. Um, so, but, but I'm going to comment on what she said, and I've handled a lot of appeals all the way to the uh, Supreme Court. Uh, and one thing you learn is you got to make it easy on them up there when they're doing the appeal, uh, at least when you're representing a party. If you don't make it easy on them, they're going to make it hard on you, uh, usually with the uh, uh, with the decision. And so. What I would see where I was, and, and I think it's kind of interesting, I, I don't think most people knew when they drove across Meridian they were no longer in Maricopa County. Uh, I, I really don't think attorneys realized they were no longer in uh, Maricopa County when they crossed Meridian. So I, I 
can't really say exactly what happens here, but I hear, hear a lot of attorneys saying well, this is what always happens. But anyway, what I would see almost at least three days a week were stacks of cases this high um, that were there just for my signature for uh, um, default. I think uh, Charlie can back that up. He covered for me a number of times when, uh, uh, as, a, as a pro tem when I was running around doing whatever. And you could take them like this, the, the, the motions and the China doll affidavits, et cetera, et cetera. And you'd take three or four of them and hold them up to the light. <laughs> and the only difference in them was the name. That was the only difference there. Um, and they were usually signed, it said it had a partner's name, and then you'd see a signature on it. You maybe you couldn't make out all the signature, but you could sure tell it wasn't the partner, and it said four. So someone was signing it for the partner. Who? A lawyer, a legal assistant, a secretary at the front desk. You've got no idea who it was that signed that. Uh, and, and that was troubling. Uh, but you, given the volume that we have to work with, you don't have time to really do all the things that Myra would like when she sees them land on her desk. You just don't have time. Now, I just saw as part of uh, the materials that were circulated for this class, this, this form you have, and that's something, because you can do it quickly. Um, you can go through there and check, check, write, write, um, and do it fairly quickly. I'm assuming that's on a, uh, a fillable document where if you're a computer literate, you can type it in pretty quickly. Um, and that's a good head start. But I'll tell you what I would do when uh, I got a notice of appeal. What I would do, there is nothing in the world wrong with you do it, taking the time to do a supplemental findings of fact and conclusions of law. You don't have time to do it on every case, but when one goes up on appeal, you can help the appellate judge by saying, this is why I did something. This is the evidence I heard. I make these specific findings of fact, and my conclusion of law is, um, and maybe it was the attorney's fees in this case are unconscionable, and I would use that word. Um, and then that would uh, be assigned a to the package. Um, sometimes I would do it even beforehand, but usually, uh, and, and quite frankly, uh, I would always start with one that was in my computer database. I know darn well the partner didn't generate those documents, him or herself. I know better. A paralegal did that, or a legal assistant, or something like that. They did that. They didn't spend three or four hours doing that. Um, and so, but if you don't articulate findings of fact and conclusions of law and give Myra, or whoever happens to be uh, doing it uh, that particular day, something to hang their hat on, um, they're going to hang it on you. You know, we, uh, we usually see requests for attorney's fees and we will grant them or, or not. And I think um, most of the judges do exactly what uh, Myra did, um, indicated. And they, we go through and we look at what the, what the charge is, how much it's for. Um, some judges have uh, things that they just don't like to award fees for. There's one judge in particular who doesn't like to award fees for um, the preparation of the China doll affidavit, um, and they're—I think everybody's kind of got their own perks. But um, 
I pretty much do what Myra does, and that is go through um, and um, decide. In terms of when we get from, on an appeal, when we get uh, the, the issue is attorney's fees, um, we do look at the, the China Doll affidavit. We did have a case recently where the, uh, uh, one of the parties had a, uh, had a firm that they was representing them, and they had a China Doll affidavit. And then uh, they had um, a kind of a high-priced lawyer, pretty uh, well-known, in, uh, in Arizona, and uh, the fee for that lawyer was um, forty thousand dollars, and there were were no uh, there was there was no affidavit, there was nothing, uh, and uh, we sent it back to the uh, well. We a lot of times we just uh, we just did away with that forty thousand dollars. The fee came up on appeal, and. Uh, we said that the uh, what the judge had done with the firm, there was uh, an affidavit. There was certainly you could see how they came up with the figure they came up with. But the forty thousand dollars with just the uh, fee agreement and no timesheets, um, we reversed that part of it from Superior Court, and we didn't send it back. Uh, we just said we just took it out. No, I have nothing to add on this one. All right. Yes. Okay. I was just going to add one more thing that I look for some, or two more things. Um, one thing I look at also is to see if I think there's been any churning going on where there's, because sometimes I'll see it, it's how many times you're actually reviewing this memorandum of law? You know, once, twice, three times. It's, and. I don't, I'll usually strike a lot of the reviews because how many times can you, you maybe you really did review it 18 times because you're OCD or whatever. I'm OCD so I understand it. And I think it's fine to be OCD, I just don't think it's fine to charge somebody for it. So, you know, I will look at, because sometimes, and I'm sure you see it also, there's a considerable amount of unnecessary work that's being done and being billed for at a high rate. So it's something else that just wanted to throw out as a consideration. All right, so one of our earlier panelists yeah, has a I, quick I question just, or comment. I just want to make an observation with, yeah, with regard to the Myerson affidavit. <clears throat> Uh, which uh, is, that was 19, that was decided in July of 1983. At the time, Rule 1.5 did not exist. It wasn't uh, enacted by the uh, ABA Board of Governors till August or uh, October of 1983. So the standards did not may not have existed. The other is at the time 1983, we didn't have computerized time records. And those are very helpful. Um, in there's good news, bad news. It's easier for attorneys to keep time. But the question arises based upon what the judge said earlier, looking at the fee applications and the, uh, the time records. You know, are you putting in the number one to show that was the complaint so the attorney doesn't have to type that up? And then the attorney puts the time in to prepare the complaint. Uh, or when you put in the number one, does it say complaint 1.2 hours and 1.5 hours? Maybe that's worth an inquiry. And I, I mention that because in China Doll it says contemporaneous time records would be helpful. In 1983, 
those that all had to be handwritten, hand typed. Now that's not necessary. Also, I checked um, amazing things with smartphones. I, I emailed the uh, Ethics Council of the State Bar, and she told me the Economics of Law Practice uh, 2013 was the fifth iteration, and they came out every three years. So in 1983, the Economics of Law Practice, which would give you some indication of which being billed in the, or which being charged in the area, um, was still 15 years away. Um, so if Judge Morrison had known that, I'm going to ask him to pick the lottery numbers for this week. But um, those three issues may be, you know, may be important uh, when you're looking at these fee applications. Thank you. Okay, so um, we're going to have next question. You're next, and then is there anybody who wants to be on deck? On deck? Okay, you'll be on deck. Thank you. Greg Wismer. An observation and something that's very scenario-based that I'd like your input on as to how you would actually break it down for the analysis. I'd like to think that we would be able to use that level of scrutiny that was just proffered, and that is to be able to actually have the fee agreements and whatnot brought in. But with all due respect, when you're dealing with anywhere from 10 to 15,000 cases per year, maybe two-thirds of which are civil filings, it may not be entirely practical, but that having been said, I don't think that's the basis for giving short shrift to the analysis that needs to be done to determine whether or not the fees are reasonable or not. But in that vein, going forward with that analysis, could you give me very scenario based as what, with that, with that lay of the land, what kind of best practice you would look at in an individual court level to determine all right, very good. We might be presented with the scenario where you're looking at one case, the affidavit for default and the default judgment that was that was submitted, the uh, affidavit that comes forward, it says that took at $350 an hour, one hour to actually be able to generate and submit to the court. You have another one that comes in that says for that same type of filing, that same pleading, it took 3.5 hours at $250 per hour. Being that there's, quote, no shop manual, so to speak, to be able to actually serve as the litmus test as to whether that type of pleading really requires one hour, 2.5 hours, 5.5 hours, what would be part of the litmus test that you use? And as a part B on this, I would simply ask this. Even recognizing the English system where the prevailing party should indeed prevail, what analysis would you use in looking at that affidavit when you might see, for example, a motion for judgment on the pleadings? No response from the defendant, but the court denied it. Should you still obligate the opposing party to pay? A motion for summary judgment that was submitted. That's their prerogative to file it. The court denied it. There was no input from the opposing party, but you should you still obligate them to pay? Thank you. Art, can I just make a comment on that? And it's, it's really a question, and, and I certainly do, I'm not that familiar with justice court practices and procedures, but I wonder why on routine matters, a court cannot establish a presumptive fee for a routine matter, and that presumptive fee would be granted, and if you want to ask for more than the presumptive fee, then you have to provide an explanation to justify it. I, I think in part, if that's permissible, that would address this gentleman's question. As to the fee agreement, again, that could be a local rule that, that any fee application must be supported by the, the retainer agreement. So I, I, I think there may be, from a non-justice court practice standpoint, maybe solutions to this situation, I don't know. 
Any other panelists care to address this question or questions? China at all affidavit. We're going to have a hearing on this um, 
this fee application. Uh, and, and I would do that. Um, and then you can, you can ask the questions, right? I'm curious, counsel, uh, can you tell me, was this a little bit different, a little bit unusual, something different about it that required a little more time? Um, but when you get them from the same firm over and over and over again, you, you know, at least you think they'd have three or four different examples, you know, <laughs> kind of rotating. Um, but when the, when the language is identical from the beginning of that complaint to the ending, you know that a legal assistant, legal secretary, spit that out um, in a computer, um, and God knows who signed it. Okay, so Judge, so you have the telephonic hearing, and an associate appears telephonically, and you ask the question, um, how did the named partner spend nine hours on this credit card cookie cutter default case? Mm -hmm. And the associate says, we stand by our affidavit. We what? We stand by our affidavit. <laughs> Okay, then I stand by my previous ruling. Um, I, I don't find that reasonable. And then if they're going to appeal it, make, it's going to take you time. There are people you can consult. I don't, I don't know, for example, uh, I, I hate to say this, I really do, uh, but Charlie's a very good writer. And he used to work for me at the Motor Vehicle Division, and he used to do a lot of complex writing uh, stuff um, to, to help me out. Um, Check with them. You know, can you help me out? Uh, are, are you allowed to do that? Do they call you? And, and good. That, that's a good thing. Um, consult with someone. You, you should have been assigned, if you're a relatively new judge, a mentor judge in NJO. You know, I've got this unusual thing. How do I deal with it? Um, don't just shoot from the hip and then expect her to try to think of a, a, a good argument for you. Because that's not what she's supposed to do. You're supposed to put it there in front of her. I don't know whether that answers the question. Yeah, I mean, the, the answer to your example is it's unreasonable. It doesn't matter what the person said on the phone. If the judge looks at the work performed, can conclude that the time was unreasonable. I don't see that as, as an issue. I do want to go back to my suggestion here. There is a manual, there is a justice court best practices manual. It seems to me, maybe we should ask the lawyers here, maybe the bar would appreciate, if we ask for a presump the presumptive time, we don't have to just, we don't, we don't have to jump through all these hoops. But if we're gonna ask for more than the, the presumptive time, then we need to provide more explanation. So I, I think there is a solution to this problem that can simplify this, this for, for a lot of people, and I would welcome the feedback of the lawyers on, on that suggestion. Judge Orozco, do you have any comments on this question? You know, the only thing, uh, as you were talking, um, I actually, when I was in private practice, did do some justice court work, and the, I could only relate it to the landlord-tenant work I did. And I think the only time it took me more than um, an hour to draft a complaint was the first time I did one when I did the complaint. After that, it was, I actually did fill in the blanks. Um, I put in the person's name, the address, how much rent was due, based on the, um, what my client gave me and, and those kinds of things, and then appeared. And I, I would venture to say that if I spent um, an hour from start to finish, including attending the hearing, because the hearings went very, very fast. We didn't. We really did not wait around at all for uh, for the uh, justice of the peace to start them. If I spend an hour 
which is usually what I charged. All right, so you're next, and then Judge Macbeth will be after that, and then you'll be in the whole rig. I was speaking to Judge Meyerson, and something did come up that we were talking about, which was in the, um, what is it, the case you had, Judge Orozco, did anyone address the issue that the HOA CCNRs are contracts of adhesion? <laughs> no. <laughs> the, the short answer, no, uh, they didn't. Um, uh, and I, I, I guess I didn't think about it as a contract of adhesion, but um, I, I guess in my dissent, I um, indicated that I thought that uh, asking for fees that were unreasonable was a violation of our ethical rules. And, um, and, uh, and, and the way I read, the, the way the majority was writing the opinion was that if you ask for it and um, nobody complains sufficiently, then you get it. And I, I didn't think that was right. I thought that the um, uh, I thought trial courts ought to be able to um, use their discretion. I'll tell you that Geller v. Lusk. I don't know if you um, that's I know that's in your um, uh, material. I think that that actually does go um, uh, pulls uh, McDowell Mountain back a little bit, and still says that uh, trial courts are required to. Um, use their discretion and determine what is reasonable. Yeah, yeah well, they are contracts of, of adhesion. I guess I have a question for the plaintiff's lawyers here. Uh, if, if we're dealing with a contract of adhesion, then we have an unconscionability analysis that, that we would use to assess the terms of, of a contract of adhesion. So I guess one question that occurs to me, is it unconscionable for the stronger party in a contract of adhesion to require the weaker party to pay all of the attorney's fees, regardless of how reasonable. Let's get a microphone over there before you answer. <laughs> answer the question. I would think, is this on? Can everyone hear me? I would think okay. that um, I'm talking to her. Okay. When it comes time for payment to be made, it is always something that we consider before we make an application is what we've done reasonable. We do that analysis in our office before we apply. I would say, even though it says all, yes, you should still look at the reasonableness. Because even though my firm looks at it before we ever file it, um, I can't say that all firms do. So while we prefer that you don't step into the shoes of a defense counsel, you are still a judge and you are still an arbiter. You should be impartial and take a look at the reasonableness of the work. Like I said earlier, they aren't cookie cutter cases. Every case is different. Every homeowner is different. Um, some homeowners just abdicate their responsibility and never respond to anything at all, ever. And so we serve them. They don't respond. It's a fairly straightforward case. 
Then you have ones that call you all the time. They want payoff amounts. The statutes require the Condo Act and the Plan Community Act both require that if a payoff is requested by whomever requests it, they have their house up for sale, the escrow company requests the payoff amount, the homeowner themselves requests it. I have one case right now where during the course of the litigation, the homeowner asked for two payoffs, two months apart, knowing full well that the assessments were X amount of dollars per month and the late fee was Y. They could have added that themselves, but they didn't. They wanted a letter from me stating this is how much I owe as of this date. I have to provide that. So that's part of what we are asking the judges to look at, is there isn't a pro forma for these cases. There are some that are more routine than others, but no one case is going to be exactly like the next case, ever. All right, so the next question is Judge Macbeth. Hi, I'm Rebecca Macbeth. I'm the uh, judge at Moon Valley Justice Court. This microphone is kind of funny. Don't talk into it. Well, you know, but then you get feedback. What's the side of your mouth? And I can. Okay, can you hear me? Yeah. So, several decades ago, I was uh, a legal secretary. And at that time, we had a Selectric three. My attorney had to pay uh, money for the copies if we used the copy machine, so we used onion skin paper and carpet. Um, so he had forms. He had form complaints for different types of cases, but those were typed individually by law. Now that we have technology which allows those form complaints to go in and be printed out via the computer, it sounds to me as though what you're saying is, is that the same attorney, who may be a sole practitioner, or who may be a member of a large law firm, Jeff Skelton Hoffley. Um, but there is a complaint that was drafted, composed, checked, and everything at one point in time. What I seem to be hearing you say, Dennis, is that we should not be charging the composition of the complaint because they're using it as a form that was previously used on another case. And I'm puzzled by that. I don't, I don't think that's what I said. It certainly isn't what I intended. What, what I'm saying is the preparation of the complaint where they'll put three or four hours of a partner's time for the preparation of the complaint, um, that is unreasonable. That's what I'm saying. you're holding them up and they're the same seem to cause you to be suspicious of the time that was being charged. And so that, that's what's a little bit confusing to me. And I think that was where the $400 cap originated with the Justice Court best practice. That it was simply churned out over and over again and used repeatedly that same complaint that the attorney had originally written. And I guess what I'm saying is when you see dozens and dozens of these coming from the same firm and you start, wait a minute, and you start comparing them, they're, all they did was fill in a blank on a form on a computer and spit it out. And I don't think it's reasonable to believe that a partner spent three or four hours doing, preparing that complaint when it's identical to this one and this one and this one and this one, right. other than the names and dates and dollar amounts. If they originally wrote that complaint form, you're saying that that first client 
for whom that complaint was written gets the big dollar amount charged against them, sorry. And then everyone subsequent to that gets a discount because the complaint form was already written. So what you're saying is a judge should give some prorated amount against this client, against this defendant, because some other defendant... I'm not. I'm saying that you look at each individual case. I'm not out hunting attorneys looking to see whether or not the form is the same one as they filed in case number 2792 and 3847. Can I speak to that? You know, the, the, this process is not like going to a car dealership. At a car dealership, you pay a set amount for a service regardless of how long it takes. That's the concept that I think you're advocating. I don't think that's the way we do it in law. We, we, we compensate for the time. Now, if we want to change the rules, we, we can change them. But we don't, we don't compensate the way I, they compensate at Courtesy Chevrolet when you get a loop job. So, so that, it's good. I'm not, I don't think I'm following you because we don't, in law, we pay for the time. I understand. Right. So but maybe I'm missing the point. It sounds as though there is a, a suspicion of forms, form complaints that come out. <clears throat> and there, there seems to be a sense that the lower court should award lesser amounts for cases that are a form case. And I think that the attorney here for the plaintiff side spoke to it very clearly that each case actually is different. There may be a form that's similar, but it sounds as though we are suspicious of any attorney who submits a form complaint. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying, Judge, that we should prorate or that we should go by an auto, automobile dealership, but I was always taught to look at the individual case and not become suspicious of an attorney's charges simply because it's similar to other cases that he's filed in the chat section. Okay, so there are a couple of hands you want to respond to this. First, we're going to start with our panelist, Commissioner Harris. And then Steve, since you have the microphone in your hand, we'll go with you. And Charlie, if you could, or Steve, if you would hand the microphone to Edie when you are done. And then, um, let's see, who was next in the queue? Rick is next in the queue for the question. I would say a couple of things with regard if I was reviewing one of those. There are two issues there that are getting mixed up is from the way I'm hearing it. One is the time that the attorneys are spending counseling, determining, making legal decisions, deciding what to do. That's a time charge. Then there's the time charge of actually writing the complaint. If the language in the complaint is basically form language, I would side with Judge Lusk and say, form language is form language. Somebody may have put it down, but this, a lot of the form language that you're seeing is not rocket science. It's pretty much laid out. You could probably go to a self-service center type form and just grab the same language. The real time is coming, not in the filling out of the complaint, but in the coming up with the claims you're gonna put in the complaint, and that, and that should be listed in the China doll for what it is, as opposed to just saying preparation of complaint and all being lumped together. And that way, the just, judges, justices, whoever's looking at it would know what is being asked for by the attorney and why it's reasonable. And you know, maybe you had 
two and a half hours of talking with a client and going over that ledger that was prepared and reviewing it and saying, well, this charge replicates this charge down here. Why do you have two charges for the same date for the same amount? You can't do that. Was there two separate things? What's going on? Is this a typographical error? Is this an error in billing? What's happening? That's different from the filling in the a form complaint, which is where I think there's some of the disconnect. All right, Steve. I, I would point out, this almost goes to what does go directly to what Judge Lusk said about asking the associate, you know, are these, are these times accurate? Did the partner spend this time? Uh, we stand by our affidavit. The rule, 3.3, talks about candor towards the tribunal. Um, I teach professional responsibility two or three semesters ago, just prior to Dick Siegel passing. Some of you may have known him at Gust Rosenfeld. Uh, talked to my class and said, what does candor to the tribunal mean? It comes from the word candor. It's not the truth, it's the whole truth, the definition. Free from reservation, disguise, or subterfuge. Straightforward. Uh, you can ask the attorney, did you spend this time Standing by our affidavits, not a candid answer, response to the judge. You're entitled to that. And if someone, there's nothing wrong with putting down, I spent three hours on this complaint, if that's what you spent. Or putting in your affidavit, I spent three hours, but some of this was excessive, so I've reduced it to this amount. But to put down two hours, when it only took a half an hour, it was done by a paralegal and reviewed by the partner, that's not candor, I would submit. That is not candor to the tribunal. And I, I used to live on Beacon Hill, Massachusetts, when I was in law school, and someone broke into the basement, and a policeman came up, he says, I don't know why you people could live here in Boston so much crime, because that's all he saw. I see all the fee arbitration awards. Believe me, a lot of attorneys are doing things they ought not to be doing. We get a lot of cases from ethics. So although the vast majority, obviously, are doing the right thing, there are some attorneys who are not uh, following the rules, are not uh, being candid towards you in, your, in their fee applications. Well, my suggestion well, why even is, ask the attorney, did you spend the time? That's really not the question. That's really not relevant. The question is, is the time that's claimed reasonable for the task performed? So it really is irrelevant how much time they spent if you, as the judge, look at the work that was done, and in your opinion, conclude that the time claimed is excessive. So why do, why do we have to question someone's honesty? It's well, the, the reason I say that is because as a justice or a piece, you may see a whole bunch of uh, applications from a particular law firm that says, preparation of complaint, seven-tenths of an hour. They're using the form complaint, they discuss it with the client, they get the information, they maybe send the client a form that they fill out, their paralegal, uh, does it, and they're doing you know, seven tenths, five tenths, six tenths. Then someone comes in with an hour and a half. You know, it's sort of the reverse. Do you ask the person an hour and a half, did you really spend this time? And maybe they have to explain to you uh, whether it was uh, appropriate. And don't forget, the time should be for legal activities, not if I'm not technologically advanced and I have to type out all my complaints. I don't get the benefit as a sole practitioner typing out my complaints. I don't get paid for that time as legal services. Uh, so I think it's, it, it's not only the, the law firms that may be putting too much time on, you may get a lot of law firms who put what you think is unreasonable because it's too short. So you can look at it from both ways. All right, Edie, your turn. Thank you. And, and I would agree with you, Commissioner Harris, that 
when I bill for the complaint, part of what I'm doing is I'm not allowed to block bill. But very often, if we have clients who bring us a lot of work, they have, unfortunately, a lot of homeowners in their facility that are not paying their assessments. We offer them a certain rate to do it. So I may spend half an hour, 45 minutes, going over the ledger and asking for updates, or not updates, but backup evidence. Okay, you have all of these fines, what is your evidence? In the middle of the year, you change the assessments. Where's the resolution from the board that says you have the right to do that? Um, that's not an analysis that can be done by a paralegal. I have to look at that and question that and get the support from the client for that. As much as you try to train the client to give you that information up front so you don't have to keep going back to the well all the time, they don't always understand it. So I suppose that maybe we need to take a look at some of our billing practices. And even though we may charge a kind of a flat rate, we don't flat rate bill it. We make sure the billing fits the flat rate. We maybe need to be a little bit more specific as to the background work that we're doing to substantiate the amounts we're seeking. All right, uh, Rick, you have the next question. Who, uh, who else has a question that we can put you uh, on deck? Yes, sir, you'll be on deck. Anybody in the hall? Okay, we'll hold on for a little bit. I'm Rick Lee, and I'm the pro tem judge and uh, mediator of the Justice Court. I've been working with Bart and the uh, mediation department. Talk into it. You have to hold it closer to your face. Uh, like this. Yes. There you go. Um, in mediation, which would go prior to a court hearing and then an adjudication. We have uh, one attorney who appears with what I would call a captive collection agency who go around and uh, basically work in a series of HOA collection cases or landlord-tenant cases, okay? And the collection agency has no financial interest other than they have a signed contract with these entities to collect the money and uh, get a 40% premium. And then they have an attorney. In one case, the amount of the uh, fee, and, and this individual did not realize, unlike myself when I moved to Arizona, that you have two HOAs in one community. You have an immediate HOA, and then you have sort of a regional HOA. And she was not paying the regional HOA. The amount was $800. And so when she realized that, she called up the, the HOA and says, uh, I, want to, I want to pay my $800. Didn't realize this was the advice of closing. And so anyway, the HOA said, well, that's been turned over to, to a collection agency. And so anyway, we had the mediation. She volunteered to pay the, the uh, $800, but the attorney won $1,800 for filing the case, plus the 40% uh, on the collection agency. The collection agency, as I saw it, was not offering any economic activity other than they had signed a contract with the HOA. And, and we asked the attorney, what is your $1,800 for? Well, that's just for following the complaint. Appreciate your insights. Panel, insights. Judge Orozco, let's start with you. I need to go back into private practice. <laughs> <laughs> it's rough out there. <laughs> you, you know, it, it, well, I, I, maybe I didn't fully understand it, but he wanted the 40% on top of the $800? Well, the 40% the 
the $800, the 40% of $800, which would be $320, and then $1,800 for initially filing the case. So we're talking about the $800 that was the corpus of the claim, a 40% collection fee because it was referred to a collection agency. The collection agency then hired an attorney. And it seems like this attorney appears with this collection agency every case they have. Well, um, I, I'm hoping that they would have a China doll affidavit and you could oh, kind of go through that. And, and what, we, what we did in that case, we settled the $800 and said, we're going to court for a China doll application. And, and, and I guess the, I don't understand how they get $800 and then $320 on top of that when the agreement was they would get 40% of whatever they collected from the $800. But the, so the, the deal is the, the collection agency hired the attorney. The, yeah, it, it, it just, I don't know what to say except, wow. You're speechless. <laughs> <laughs> kind of my reaction, too. <laughs> All right, so that seems to be a, a, maybe an outlier. Um, down the panel, anybody else have a, any comments or thoughts about this particular case? Well, based on what you told us for that, I think you're going to have a, a, an ethical issue that's going to the state bar. Yeah, if that's all there is, if he can walk in and say, here's what it is, she agreed, she contacted them, she said that she was willing to pay it, he went ahead and filed a complaint. That's something where I think as a justice you may be contacting the state bar if they go after the attorney fees. Unless there's a whole lot more that we haven't heard. I mean, there's always the chance that there's a well there that we don't know about yet. I would say maybe accessible. <laughs> yeah, and so this is the thing that we see is that once it gets to the attorney, they've already put a fee on it, and they'll say, okay, I want to pay my $800, and they'll say, well, I have it now, now it's $1,100. Um, and it's not clear whether work has been done or not. I mean, we don't know. We just say, have you done work? And they say, yes, they don't provide affidavits for us. But I will point out that this is not the routine case. Um, I want to make that clear. All right. Um, there was a gentleman actually on the other side of you, Charlie, who is next. All right. We'll start with this person who has the microphone, and then gentleman, you on his left, well, you will be next. Mark Hildenbrand. This isn't that uh, odd of a scenario to have a collection agency spend several years trying to collect something and not be able to do it and then get finally an attorney involved. So I don't really see the problem there. Why the, why the collection agency shouldn't be entitled to that fee. The other, the, the part about filing a case where you don't need to, that's maybe, maybe a different thing, but I, I just don't see that the, the judges are, are looking, the ones I see, you know, are, are interested in the real contract clients. I have some subprime sub lenders that nobody will take their collection cases that I can see hardly anywhere in the city. But I'll take them, but I want a pretty darn good fee for it. And so if I do the work, say it's $18,000, I do the work, and my contract with them is that I'm going to take, let's just say it's 45% of it. The Supreme Court has told us that that contingency fee is, is a uh, necessary evil, is what they called it. They also called it something which was the poor man's uh, access to the courthouse. But nobody in the Justice Courts or the Superior Court wants to hear about what the percentage is. They want to hear what kind of time you have. But 
we might have three years of, of people talking on the phone trying to get things done through letters or telephone calls. You know, they're not wanting to compensate for that either. So it's, it seems like we're broad brushing as if the, and it does seem to me like the, the guy that was owed the money and the guy that's helping the guy that's owed the money has suddenly become the bad guy. Yep. And I just encourage us not to broad brush everybody because not everybody's acting like these little acceptance, you know, very few. Anybody want to comment on that on the panel? No? Steve, you're going to comment on that? I just want to go to the rules. The rules say you look at the risks to the lawyer. Um, now, part of the question is, is the collection agency or is the attorney staff and who they are? And I've got, I'm doing a VR, uh, not a VR, but we're going to arbitration. We're, they call the law firm, it's a collection agency. They called me once I didn't pick up, but it was, I called back and it was, they're collecting, so I don't know any money, but it's, if it's actually, I can see the structure, so strange to me, but a law firm that's actually appended to a collection agency, if they're taking all these years to get this money, and maybe 45% is reasonable given the standard that says the risk to the lawyer. Now, having said that, if you take 45% and under the rules as I understand them and how they're applied by VR, um, and you make a call and the client says, oh yes, I'm sorry, I shouldn't take money, and you get maybe two hours into it or three hours into it, they, to take 45% with a, say, $70,000 case is probably going to be deemed unreasonable. Our courts, at least the way we're at VR, is you look at each case individually. And so 45% may be reasonable in one case, and may be unreasonable in another. Uh, but the, what you ought to be doing is what those attorneys ought to be doing is keeping a record of all the calls by their paralegal to justify that amount. We do? Yeah. And that should be, you know, as long as it's legal activity. If it's done by another entity, it's completely separate from the lawyer collection agency, that's not legal fees because if they were doing it under the guise of saying this is legal activity, do we have an unauthorized practice of large? You know, if they're directed by an attorney, if they're the attorney's staff, um, you're probably going to be covered and can justify that amount. All right, so Charlie, the person on your immediate left. Oh, sorry. Keith Frankel, St. Marcos Justice Court. Um, I wanted to comment on something and then ask a question on this where people have been talking about this uh, $400 and Judge referenced it. I just want to give people a little background. I was on the committee with Judge McMurray and another judge and I studied over 300 cases filed as to what the rates were. We talked with attorneys to determine how much actual time are you spending and what was the average rate. And that's where this $400 came from. So there's some it was looking at community standards, it was looking at the issues involved with the cases, it was looking at all the factors you have, and actual time and discussion with attorneys in terms of the fee. And that's where the $400 involved from. But what I want to, so sort of two questions. One is, I have two cases right now in front of me where in a pretrial, the parties agree to the principal owed and what, what I'm getting back now is that the attorney wouldn't agree to the attorney fees, and they've increased the amount that they're billing asking for attorney fees. Now, isn't it supposed to be making the client whole? They've agreed what they owe in principle, 
and the attorney is not willing to negotiate on fees, they're not billing, I know for a fact they are not billing the client those fees, and they're negotiating on their fees. So what are we supposed to do with that? All right. Judge Meyerson? I'm not sure I really, I, I guess I don't. Can you I, use the microphone, please? Well, I, <clears throat> you're going to have to walk me through that again. I don't think I, I, I appreciated the, the, the question there. At, at the pretrial, there was, the, the parties agreed that this is the amount of loan on the principal. The defendant raised an issue with the attorneys about the amount they were charging them in fees. And the attorney then is saying, well, we'll just leave it to the court. They tried to discuss it. All they're doing is trying to, what they're doing is, is they basically put in more in, the, in their application about getting more money for their fees than about what is owed to the client. Well, I mean, if, if the parties are not able to negotiate a resolution of the entire dispute, including the reasonable attorney's fees, then it seems to me that there is an additional cost to the client of continuing to seek to recover those fees. And if those fees incurred are reasonable, uh, they, they probably need to be awarded, if, if I'm appreciating the scenario that you're describing. So I, I guess I don't, I don't see a problem there. Commissioner Harris, do you want to add anything to this? I'm guessing that the scenario is that up through the pretrial agreement, hypothetically, the attorney wants $2,000 for fees and the party paying says, you know what, I think only $1,000 of fees would be adjusted are reasonable and so there's this thousand dollar difference that's just attributed to the attorney's fees. Is that the correct type of, is that what you're really asking? Well, more or less, but then after that pretrial. And then after that, now all that the dispute's going to be is about the attorney fees. Correct. And I think that from my perspective, I would say the first thing to do is look at what is the fee up through the pretrial and was that a reasonable thing? If it's a reasonable fee, then I would probably say, yep, you get the fee up to there. I might be very inclined to say that I'm not going to give you any more fees for fighting for those fees. And, you know, attorney, you could have resolved it because this is really your claim more than it is your client's claim. I don't know that it's reasonable to do it. There are cases, certainly, that I've seen that kind of have an equivalent kind of thing where people have appealed the Justice Court's award of attorney fees on a defaulted person. And then after they win at the Superior Court, hypothetically, they win at the Superior Court, then they come back to the Superior Court and say, by the way, I want fees on appeal. And I think, you know, appeals are expensive to write, so let's give me another $3,000 in fees. And I usually just simply sit there and go, no. You know, the, de the defaulted defendant had nothing to do with the decision about the fees. That was something that the judge made. And judges are immune, so I'm not gonna award you fees from the defaulted party. And of course, the judge isn't gonna pay you your fees, so you had the opportunity to litigate it. You were in control of how you wanted to litigate it. You got the opportunity to do it, and you won. But I'm not going to award you fees on top. And I think it's up to, the just, to you, the judge, who's evaluating it to see. Do you think that the fees asked for up to the time 
of the, the end of the pretrial when they came to the underlying agreement were reasonable. And whatever you think is reasonable from there, then you would have to say, is one of the parties being unduly unreasonable about this? It could be that the plaintiff's fees were totally reasonable and the defendants being the one that's being a little bit difficult. In which case it would be appropriate for them to have to pay additional fees. So I think you need to just kind of evaluate what the China doll, the work done was up to the point where you've got the agreement on the underlying case and then see who's being unreasonable or reasonable at that time and making sure that they can support what it is they asked for for their fees up through the pretrial. All right, we have uh, another question. Yes, sir. Judge, it sounds like the pretrial conference, you either, you either concluded the entire case at one time or you didn't. And when we go to pretrial conferences, we walk out with an understanding, comma, or we tell the judge to set up a trial. They made a suit for $3,800. The defendant agreed he owed $3,800. That's all well and good. The problem is the client has paid a $100 filing fee, 57 to 85 to serve, and he's going to pay a piece of that money to his lawyer, uh, whatever percentage that is, as attorney's fees. Once again, even though the guy owes what he was sued for, the client is not getting back what he's entitled to. So, I mean, you either, we either get it done at the pretrial conference or we don't, and then we set up the trial. All right. Um, yes, sir. Uh, you want to say something, Charlie? Yes. I want to make sure we get an hour of ethics. Can we do hypothetical number two? Um, <laughs> let's do this question, and then we'll do hypothetical number two. Thank you. Greg Wismer again. It's, if it's commonly accepted that there is a judicial role to play to determine the reasonableness of attorneys' uh, requests for award of attorneys' fees, then my question scenario-based is this. What we looked at before was the issue of determining whether or not 1.5, 2.5, 4.4 hours are appropriate, for example, for any given task, any pleading that might be filed with the court, fair enough. That's contained in the China Doll Affidavit. That's part of what you use to conduct your analysis. There seems to be an emerging trend, though, that's developing when it comes to this approach and the use of a China Doll Affidavit, and that is called flat fee billing. My question to you on that then becomes, how do you impose a level of analysis to determine whether or not a $150 rate is appropriate for this type of pleading, or a $450 flat fee rate is appropriate billing for this type of pleading? That's where things seem to be emerging as far as complying with the China Doll Affidavit. Thank you. All right, Commissioner Harris, it's your turn to be uh, at the front of the line again, so we'll ask you. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. All right, Judge Luss, flat fees. I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't follow all the question um, or the, the statement. Or are we on so, two now? No, so we're not on two yet. So the question is uh, along these lines. Um, My hearing is terrible. Flat fees are becoming more and more common. Mm -hmm. And so it, it can be more and more common to say, uh, client, I'm going to charge you $300 to do your complaints. Just all of them. Some will take longer, some will take shorter, but it's all going to cancel out in the wash. In, in other words, what you're presented with then is not if it's two, point, uh, two, two hours at $200 per hour to draft and submit the complaint, it was rather a flat, flat, flat <coughs> fee 
billing rate of $250, how do you apply a reasonableness standard to that as to whether $250 is reasonable to draft and submit a complaint? So for the people who are on the audio next year, three years from now, um, basically the question is how do you determine if that flat fee of $250 or $350 per complaint is reasonable? I think that goes back to the uh, original thing, uh, looking at the China Doll affidavit. The idea is, is this reasonable for the services provided? Is this a reasonable fee? Um, maybe you find that 300 is um, reasonable. Maybe you find that it's less than reasonable. Maybe you find it's more than reasonable. I don't know. But I don't think you can, I don't think the court is bound by an agreement between an attorney and his or her client as to what the flat fee is going to be uh, when it comes time to, when it's time for the court to make a decision. Uh, the court has to, I think, look at the reasonableness of that, and if it's reasonable, grant it. Judge Orozco, do you have anything to add to that? You know, I, I guess the assumption is always that, that you should look, you, you look back at the Meyerson affidavit. Um, <laughs> um, and if you don't have a Meyerson affidavit, then I guess you're going to uh, be using your best judgment, and, and your best judgment may be that $400 for this app, for this the drafting of this complaint is is unreasonable, especially if you don't have anything to base it on. Um, I think uh, I think lawyers do themselves a disservice, even if it is a flat fee, or uh, maybe it's a contingent fee, maybe it's 30 percent, 40 percent. I think they still do themselves a, a disservice if, um, if they're going to want the other side to pay for it, that they don't justify their fees with a, um, with a Meyerson affidavit. I mean, I assume there is a documentation of the time involved. So you're comparing the, the fee with the time. And if there's no time, then that's an insufficient presentation to you as a judge. I think at that point, if you only have a flat fee and you have no time and no fee, what you could do to try is try and do a little mathematical analysis really quickly by looking at the uh, economic analysis and saying, okay, this is a one-man firm. The average fee is charging is 250 bucks. They're asking for, I'm going to make $500 because it makes the math easy and a math challenge. Uh, they ask for $500. That translates into two hours worth of a standard amount of work, but two hours be a reasonable charge for the kind of complaint I'm looking at. You know, is this a complaint that has one allegation, basically, he, I'm the plaintiff, I live in Maricopa County, he didn't pay his rent to me, I want his rent, P.S., that's the end, or is this a complaint that went on for four, five, six, eight pages, you know, and at that point, you could make an equivalent guess as to about the time that might have been used and try to evaluate if you think that's a reasonable thing for the kind of complaint you're reading. Because I want to go back to my suggestion about a presumptive fee. Why can't all the justice courts get together and say, for the filing of an application for default judgment, the presumptive fee is X dollars. And if you then comply with that, you don't have to document the time. You just simply say, filing an application for default judgment, $400, whatever. So it seems to me there ought to be a presumptive fee for common legal services that avoids a lot of these issues that you're talking about. But isn't that contrary to the China dollar opinion? No, because, because not, not at all, because we're talking about routine services 
that the court has looked at time after time after time after time and agrees that there is some a presumptive fee that applies. I think if, if a court sets that, then it's fine. I'll add one thing to it. I think that if the court comes up with something like that, they should simply say it's presumptive but not mandatory because you want to make sure people can challenge it. If not, we'd also run it foul of perhaps antitrust. Yeah, no, All right, so Charlie has asked us to, to take a look at um, the judges panel and scenarios page in your packet. It's buried in there. Uh, and number two. And number two, um, this hypothetical uh, gets close to one of the ones that we were talking about uh, in the Q&A. And just to very quickly uh, give an overview, an HOA sues a homeowner claiming that the homeowner owes $2,500 in back dues and fees. Homeowner agrees that she owes $2,000 and is willing to pay that much. The HOA refuses, claiming that the offer fails to cover its attorney's fees, which now bring a total owing to $3,250. At trial, the court awards the HOA $2,000 on the underlying claims. Is the HOA entitled to an award of attorney's fees, and does this create an access to justice problem? Um, which of our panelists would like to start? Don't say not it all at once. <laughs> Uh, Charlie, there's somebody who would. Uh, Charlie wants us to do the panel first, so we're going to follow. Um, I have a question, though. Oh, you want clarification? Yes. Okay. Is it, they're saying that it was, that's why I was like, can I have the microphone? <laughs> the question I have is, is it 750 in attorney fees they're asking for, or 1250 in attorney fees? Because I wasn't quite 100% clear on that, because that does have an impact on the answer. So the homeowner is saying, uh, let's see, they sue for $2,500 in back dues and fees. So let's say that it's, uh, she agrees that she owes the $2,000 and that's the substance, uh, that's the corpus of the amount, but it doesn't uh, cover the attorney's fees, which are the additional twelve fifty. dollars Yes. Well, I'll do it, and, and I'll, I'll answer it the way my students answer it in the classes that I teach at the law school. You haven't given us enough information, Professor, to answer this question because we don't know how much time was devoted and we don't know whether that time was, was, was reasonable. All right, so we, that's one answer. We don't have enough information here, which is always the punt answer, which makes you very happy when you hear it when from your students, Judge Professor Meyerson. Um, Judge Orozco. I, I think that um, assuming that the that, the, that there's a contract and, and, and they're eligible for fees, I think that um, they would be, uh, the HOA would still be entitled to its fees. Does it create an access to justice problem? I, that I can't answer, but um, I think it does. Uh, I think the HOA is still entitled to some of the fees. They, they had to hire a lawyer to they, get that that point. Well, they, they hired a lawyer. They, um, she, uh, uh, she agrees uh, to pay $2,000. Uh, it doesn't seem to me that there was an agreement that the Homeowners Association agreed that she only owed $2,000. Um, you, you, you don't really know what the dispute about is about in terms of if the Homeowners Association is saying, 
no, you actually owe $2,500, and, um, and the homeowner says, no, I only owe $2,000. So they're still, they're still litigating the amount. And so I'm going to throw something out that's a little different. Uh, first question I would want to know is, when she agreed to pay the $2,000, was, was this prior to anybody consulting the lawyer? Does she have proof? Because if she agreed to pay $2,000 ahead of time, and then the lawyer goes ahead and sues and gets a judgment for $2,000, is the lawyer really a prevailing party? And that hasn't, you know, if the HOA isn't a prevailing party, they're not entitled to the fees. So I think that's the first question, but we don't know the background. All right, so more complaints about the question writer. That would be me. Um, any other? Judge Lusk? I think I would probably start with a presumption, and of course the presumption is always rebuttable, uh, that the lawyer would be entitled to 750 because that's what was apparently, according to the HOA, they, the way I'm reading this, uh, giving the benefit to the author uh, of, of, of the question, the way I'm reading this, um, they had apparently already hired the lawyer, and the lawyer's fees were $750. Um, my math is suspect. If anyone has a calculator, you might want to you might want to check it. That would be the presumptive point at which I would start. Then I would analyze: Is that fair for what happened up to that point? Because I agree uh, with Myra that they weren't really the prevailing party um, at trial, um, so they would not be entitled, in my mind, to any fees for going to trial. So this is really interesting because my sense, um, I did not practice law in Arizona, um, but my, when I wrote this problem, I uh, included a, um, a um, offer of judgment, or not an offer of judgment, but a written um, uh, Now I'm totally blanking. I've been out of practice for an offer of judgment. An, 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 well, not an offer of judgment. It's an offer. Offered, not an offer of settlement, it's a, you file a motion that says, we are offering you this much, X amount of money. That's an offer of judgment? Okay. Whew. Or it takes me six times to get it right. An offer of judgment um, that for the amount, and then that's the amount that's awarded. But we don't have that in justice court, so I didn't know that at the time, since I don't practice. Um, and so that could be something that adds to the defect in the question in and of itself. Okay, let's go back to the floor. Any other, anybody have any other questions um, out there or hypotheticals that you'd like to uh, put out there for us to talk about? Yes, sir. You in the yellow shirt? You do have situations, though, where if the homeowner contests any part of the HOA fees and even wins a trial, they still lose. Um, and and that's, that's kind of the issue. It's like, okay, I admit I know the assessments. I stopped paying the assessments because I was sick of getting these additional late fees, and I, I don't owe the trash and the wheat fee from you know 2014 or whatever. And, and, and so they, they really owe some. They they litigate the entire case based on a, a, a finer wheat fee or, or something like that. They they effect win, but now you have the attorney who's gone through trial. You've got the HOA who's actually exactly going through a trial. And now, presumably, you know, they're going to request attorney's fees that you would request in a trial. And the issue is, frequently, you get into an argument about who is the prevailing party, and then you get attorney's fees on that. And you buy briefs, and it goes up. And the, the homeowner would have been better off 
if she had just agreed to pay the stuff that she didn't think she had to pay rather than litigate the case. And, and that is exactly what the question was intended to ask, and that's why it's an access to justice question, is that as Judge Williams just indicated, uh, if it wasn't clear from the hypothetical, the homeowners association is asking for more money than they're entitled to, they lose a trial, but now the attorney's fees are up here, and the homeowner loses in the long run, even though the homeowner was right. So the homeowner loses on claim one, but wins on claims two and three. Well, why, why isn't that taken into account in term, by the judge in deciding what a reasonable fee is? That would be a factor that the judge ought to be taking into account in determining what the fee is. So I, I don't, I, 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 what am I missing there? That's what the judge's job is, to, to look at what happened here and make a decision that's fair under all the circumstances. So you're saying that the judge should break out the attorney's fee by claim? Well, that's that's generally what we we, you know, we take into account. You do not, unless you have the same core of operative facts on everything, if you lose on a claim, you're obligated in your Meyerson affidavit, I, mean, I really appreciate people now, <laughs> to, to, to exclude fees on claims for which you did not prevail. Absolutely. Any other panelists, and then we'll get to Steve. All right. Well, I think just additional considerations is if the homeowner thinks agrees they owe the amount of money, did they pay that amount of money? Did they, when the complaint was filed, um, was it then only for five hundred dollars? And who is the prevailing party? I'm not sure there are. My personal view, not of anyone else. What? It's not out. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I, what I said was, you know, did the homeowner actually pay the two thousand um, dollars when the lawsuit was filed? Did the, you know, was there necessity of it? Um, when I turned it on, I lost my my uh, thought. Um, but does the homeowner association get a benefit for asking more than they might otherwise be entitled to? Even if the attorney, if, if the homeowner wrote to the homeowner association and said, you're asking for 2,500, you're going to take them to court. And I know I owe $2,000, can I pay that to you? Say, no, it's either all or nothing. And then the lawsuit is filed and every other thing, I'm not sure anything ought to be paid. Because there's an acceptance, as the statute, I guess, the Superior Court written off for settlement. But why should there be a benefit given uh, for overestimating what you're due by the homeowners association. Um, it's sort of like, well, we'll go for it. If we, if we don't get it, um, we'll always, we, we can always get some of our attorney's fees paid. What sounds like the tail wagging the dog is came up earlier, that the attorney's fees become the subject of dispute, which is always, I've always found that problematic in any event. But I think you have to analyze, you know, exactly what's going on if, if a homeowner association pulls the trigger too quickly, uh, maybe that's a consideration. And I think justice is, is very important because, again, you know, it's how people view the justice system as justices of the peace. You're like at the initial entry level for people. And if they don't think what's going on is fair and equitable, um, that creates problems, I think, throughout uh, our whole system. Yes, sir, you're in the back of the blue shirt. Uh, my name is Scott Williams. I was going to say that 341.01 does address this with reference to written settlement offers. Um, I can read it straight out of the statute. If a written settlement offer is rejected, 
and the judgment finally obtained is equal to or more favorable to the offeror than the offer made in writing to settle any contested action arising out of the contract, the offeror is deemed to be the successful party from the date of the offer, and the court may award the successful party reasonable attorney's fees. Thank you. Good information on the attorney's fee statute and contract cases. Any other questions or comments? Well, let's take a look quickly at uh, scenario number one here. Um, we've touched on it a little bit, but this one I think uh, makes it a little bit, uh, just puts it out there and puts it in this act, brings us back to access to justice. And by the way, um, I'm sure that you all are aware that Justice Bales from the Supreme Court is uh, all in on access to justice issues, and that's why we're asking, are these access to justice issues? Um, in a credit card case, the plaintiff receives a default judgment and requests an award of $1,000 in attorney's fees. The JP awards $500, and the plaintiff appeals the award, the award to the Superior Court. Uh, plaintiff submits all of the same materials and is awarded the entire $1,000, plus the attorney's fees charged for pursuing the appeal. Is it fair to the defendant who never appeared and never contested the attorney's fees in the first place? Does this create an access to justice problem? Um, and Commissioner Harris, we're going to skip you. Uh, we're going to have you be last. We're going to offer this one to you last, as you would be um, hearing this. Um, any other panelists want to opine um, on this? You know, it, uh, I seem to recall in one of the panels, um, I didn't see the first one, I just saw the last two, that somebody and maybe it was in up here said that they would not award attorney's fees in a default case um, on appeal. Was that you, Myra? Yeah. I frequently don't. Not, I, it's not a blanket, but I frequently don't. Oh, sorry. I'll repeat that and say what I said was that I frequently, when it's a default case and the issue is an attorney's fees, I frequently do not award fees to the party who's actually contesting the, against the justice court ruling and not really against the defendant who never appeared at all and didn't fight it didn't contribute to the issue and so I think that um, it it seems to, you know the question is is that fair um, uh, no <laughs> I mean is it fair that is it fair to the defendant who it's not fair to the defendant if he's awarded if he's um, Ordered to pay attorney's fees on an appeal in case he never, never appeared in front of. So I, I don't think that it would be fair to check, to uh, award attorney's fees in the appeal. Uh, just my case. Well, I'm kind of wondering what the practice is um, in Pinal County. The uh, Superior Court judge who heard the appeal would remand it, would not just enter the order um, for a certain, in other words, he or she would not take a new China doll affidavit for the appeal process and enter a judgment amount uh, for those additional attorney fees. Um, it would be remanded back to the court. And so I, I don't know, uh, in, in Maricopa County, do, when it goes up on appeal, will the uh, appealing, or the judge on appeal, or additional uh, attorney's fees? Well, there are two things. One is on a standard thing, whether it's the credit card case or not. Let's, a case where there are two parties 
Is it, do we do default or non-default? Default. Okay. Default comes up on appeal, and the whole appeal is should the did the justice court improperly cut the attorney fees because that's frequently what the issue is. I will frequently send the part about the attorney's fees back to the justice court and say, you didn't give any reason for why you cut it. And that's coming down to why did they cut it. And if I don't have a reason, it needs to go back down because I don't have a reason. I don't know what was reasonable or what wasn't reasonable or what they would do, what you, the justices, are thinking. As far as the award for the appeal itself goes, that comes to me and most of the time I'll say, this is really a contest between plaintiff's counsel and the court. So it's defendant really has no part in it and I'm not gonna make defendant pay for an error that may have been committed by the court. And I'm not saying, you know, the court may go back, re-look re at it and say, you know what? We reviewed it and I found that all of these claims are not reasonable and my original award stands because of A, B, C. That's fine. Most of the ones that come to me where they're claiming there was, it was unreasonable to cut it. It's been coming to me because there was no reason given for it. It's simply, I put in my attorney's fees, Meyerson affidavit for $2,000 and I got an award for $700. And I don't know why. <laughs> All right, let's move to um, number seven on uh, our list here. Um, and we've been kind of, you know, touching this question uh, a couple of times, but let's hit it head on. Can an attorney seeking attorney's fees be awarded fees for the time spent preparing the Meyerson affidavit? And, um, I think the law is fairly clear on that now, that, that the time spent on preparing a fee application is compensable. I think the law is fairly clear on that. It is, and should it be? <laughs> yes, the law should be clear. Well, <laughs> as clear as possible. I, I, I guess I have to say yes, because that, that is a, a, a service that uh, a, a lawyer uh, I guess is obliged to provide, it's required by the court, I, I guess I would have to say yes. I like to be devil's advocate, so I'm going to oppose your thing and say a couple of things. In the year 2015, the first thing you'd look at is what is the charge? Are we charging one-tenth an hour or are we charging 4.1 tenths of an hour for doing this Meyerson affidavit? Because the hours charges spent should already be done as part of the attorney's billing for his or her own client. And so you have to ask yourself, what is really being done that required attorney expertise that's really the act of an attorney? Preparing the bill itself is usually the act of a computer. Preparing the affidavit itself is usually the act of a computer. Virtually everybody has a Meyerson affidavit form on their computer system. So the only thing that really is requiring attorney expertise is reviewing it. And so I would probably say maybe a very minor charge, but I wouldn't be going for any, I see them where people are asking for four plus hours for doing the Meyerson affidavit. And I don't think that that is a reasonable charge. Well, no, I don't think we're disagreeing. I mean, if the, if the affidavit is actually a, a printout and not actually prepared by the lawyer, to use your example, 
then there should be a payment for it. I mean, I, 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 absolutely. Uh, let's go to number six. Uh, number six is a little bit different than the others. This is a protective order case, an in, in, injunction against harassment type case. A defendant shows up with a high-priced big law firm attorney. The order was probably appropriate. Let's just say the order was appropriate um, when issued ex parte, but the plaintiff um, is now flustered um, and unable to support the order's continuance. The defendant demands his attorney's fees for being the prevailing party. What should the JP do? <laughs> do you need more clarification? No. Okay. Panelists? I don't have an answer to that, but I know we're running out of time, and I want to be sure that we do mention the Arizona Attorney's Fees Manual we haven't talked about. That. Who's the author of that? Well, I'm, I'm, I, it's a wonderful publication. <laughs> uh, Is that the Morrison? That's the Morrison Manual. It's a, it's, I, does the Justice Court pay for that if the judges order that? Uh, wait, they, I don't know. You don't know? But it, but it answers 90% of the questions that we've had here today. Hopefully. Hold it up, please. Yeah, it's uh, written by uh, a gentleman. Uh, yeah, no, I'm just an editor, and, and Judge Orozco's colleague, Judge Norris, is a co-editor. And it's a very good book. <laughs> All right. Unconditional plug. So number six, we have the protective order. Yeah, Judge Lusk. I'd say nice try. On what basis, counsel, are you requesting attorney's fees? There's no contract. There's no statute. Yes, sir. Uh, there are two statutes. Under 13301P, I think, uh, for the order of protection, and I think the injunction is 121809 and see the RS. Um, maybe S. It used to be R, I think, but I think it's now S. It says in both of those statutes that the sexual. Okay. Party may be awarded, so it's permissive. And I think on those cases, you really need to evaluate, would it be appropriate? On the one hand, you have a huge issue of the thought about chilling people coming for orders, protective orders. You don't, if I go for a protective order because my husband just broke my arm, I don't want to be faced with the thought that, oh my goodness, I may be paying his attorney's fees, because I'll just deal with my broken arm or my black eye or whatever and not want to go to the court. So we have a huge concern as judges or judicial officers about chilling effects with protective orders. In a rare case, should there be, yes, I've done two cases in my career. In both cases, the parties were multimillionaires on both sides, and they were one of the cases, the file literally was over 1,500 pages on the order of protection. And they were basically filing motion after motion after motion after motion. The trial court transcript was 426 pages. Um, that's why I can remember it. And at this point, you're sitting there going, this is a little bit above and beyond your average order of protection hearing. So yes, I would say you can do it, but it would have to be unusual circumstances, not just the fact that it was defeated. Defendants have the right to have counsel, so do plaintiffs. If plaintiffs, same thing, if the plaintiff has a counsel, it prevails in the order of protection. Defendant by statute and by the Arizona Rules of Protective Order Procedure 
proceeding are entitled to a hearing. And we don't want to chill their asking for a hearing if they believe that the order was done inappropriately, in part because of the huge collateral consequences in a protective order can have on people's lifestyle, jobs, ability to function in society, places they can go. It takes away a lot of rights. So with the concept of not wanting to chill rights on either side, I'd be very hesitant about doing that. But there are two statutes. And Judge uh, Murray, you want to have some concluding remarks? Yeah, actually I do. Uh, and it, it's by way of acknowledging the panel, all right? And I've been throwing questions at them before this, so I need to acknowledge them now, because I do hear a convergence of views from this panel, and I'm glad to hear it. But I have to tell you a story. Uh, one of the things that led me into this is I was doing an interim ruling in a case, a civil case, with, that had one of those homeowners association attorneys. I was actually visiting one of the, one of the courts where the judge was at NJO, so I wasn't going to be doing the final ruling. This was an interim ruling. But the homeowners association attorney filed a motion that I didn't just deny, but it annoyed me. It was a stupid motion. If I told you what it was about, you'd all agree with me. It was an annoying, stupid, sophistic, very sophisticated motion. And so I, I wrote a memo saying, this motion's denied, it's very clearly denied, it should not have been filed. And by the way, if you turn out to be the prevailing party ultimately in this case, don't apply for attorney's fees for submitting this motion. You do not deserve it. And I don't care if you cite McDowell Mountain. You do not deserve it. <laughs> and I now am convinced that that would probably be sustained uh, later on. But what it means is, I just have to do more work than I've been doing before in terms of what I'm doing, which is bad news for me, but I hear that in the convergence of views here. So thank you. And how about a uh, hand for Art Nurkina? A couple of housekeeping matters. Uh, Delia is here to notarize, but to validate your parking. If you've been here for more than four hours, then you can go to lunch. You can get validated now and go to lunch. Don't worry about it. If you've been here less than four hours and you want to go to lunch, then you can do that first and come back and have it validated. If that's not clear, Delia will explain that to you. Please fill out the survey. Thank you very much for being here. We were planning a couple of uh, exciting adventures in the future as well. So thank you all for being here. Good luck driving here. I never got a chance to, and I, I wish I could. I, I wanted to get back to a point that you made. Much less trouble. You use the word clearly excessive. That they shouldn't have done that. That's right. Because it is a space there, but also, you know, I think the problem is, and I talked to my students about this here, we're looking at some of the old cases, hostile attacks. Who wrote this? In particular, employment discrimination. Employment cases are 30 years old. Things have changed. Look at things differently. And the rules are changing. The rules are starting to change. I read a lot of the teaching. That was great. Steve, thanks so much.
we'll see you again. I just have to tell you what the motion was. Was it for Mike Since he had left that off, his motion should be denied and sanctioned.